my fellow Westorians, welcome to Valar Reredis for Dunkin' Egg. This Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley! It's anger! Let me at him! Fear! Safety checklist is complete! Disgust! Ew! Ew! Ugh. Sadness is in the house! Oh no! Hello! I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going! Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Let's see what today brings us, eh, my fellow Westorians? And a eh, Dancing Sean of House Beard. What are you drinking today, my friend? Uh, this Rita actually said I should bring, drink something bright red for Aryan Bright Flame. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This is a mango juice mixed with the naked strawberry banana drink mixed with the watermelon Mountain Dew. Whoa. And it's delicious. It is really good. I, doubt it. I would try that <laughs> if I was still drinking soda. <laughs> Well, let's see. Today, we've got a lot of fun stuff. Last time, we talked about a variety of topics. This time, we're going to be moving on to the challenge, the sigil, the shield, the quote-unquote accident that was not an accident. Lots more comparisons, a few house histories. As usual, there's a lot to cover, and we're going to have a lot of fun along the way. Thanks to Nina, goodqueenally with one L.tumblr.com. Her thoughts are throughout this episode. We've got a lot of great takes from her mixed in with ours. Together, we create a lot of interesting concepts to discuss, and I hope you all enjoy it. Thanks as well to our patrons who keep us going. It's a little tougher here in the uh, what we call the doldrums, I suppose you could say. There's been a long time since there's been new material. There's stuff on the horizon with House of the Dragon and other spinoffs and the winds of winter eventually. But right now there's less going on, but we're keeping it going. Almost every week we're putting out a new episode and occasionally more than one. So thank you to those of you who are supporting us in that endeavor. We're going to keep them coming and I hope you all continue to support us. You can ask questions regarding this or other episodes, other topics, anything you want really. Aziza, I have a question. Okay, let's get right to it. What is your question? What is your shirt? Two suns, two moons? This is the... Quartered? This is the sigil of House Tarth. This is Brienne's... Oh, okay. Yeah, I thought that was appropriate, huh? Um, I can't yeah. see your shirt. What do you What do you have on? Uh, this is a mashup of the Beatles, the Abbey Road, and of the Cowboy Bebop characters. Nice. Very, very cool. What's the shade got going on over there? I'm wearing a Jackie Daytona regular human bartender shirt. <laughs> if you don't get that reference, that's from What We Do in the Shadows, which is a hilarious show slash movie. It started as a movie and became a show. You made a show out of it. Yeah. yeah. When, you, when, when a movie's good enough to, to spin off into a show, that, that says a lot. So, yeah. Well, let's start with the rejection and the acceptance. And at the end of the acceptance is when Dunk goes back to his pavilion and uh we'll talk about egg and the sigil 
So we'll start with Makar saying, why would you deign to joust with a hedge knight? And so it's, it's immediately taking us back to this place of how much separation, how much classism is in place. Like, why would you deign to joust with a hedge knight? It's not kind of an odd question, right? I mean, it's a tournament. <laughs> like, yeah. you get paired <laughs> up against it. What's he supposed to do? Say, I refuse to joust this man? Maybe it's that known that you manipulate the pairings, that you, like, make sure you don't face anyone unworthy in the first round or whatever, yeah, you know? Maybe. Make our just assume that Baylor would do that, you know? Yeah, he I never know. thought through it. He's like, why, wait, why were you fighting? It's like, that's, that never happens. What's, what, what strange <laughs> set of circumstances led you to be facing a hedge knight? But Baylor, of course, is, plays it off as he seems to do somewhat normally. Obviously, we don't have a lot of background on him, but throughout this story, anyway, he's pretty chivalrous. He takes the comment in stride, doesn't be like, what a strange comment, brother. You know, he just says, well, I want to learn about all my foes. And, uh, you know, he, he gets it. We, t- we talk about how Makar is so much like Stannis, but in this moment, it's almost like the opposite because it's like Maker, Stannis would be the one you would, might think would say, a sword is sharp in whoever's hands. It's, it's wielded. Like, yeah. you know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> like, his his birth doesn't determine how sharp his sword is or how skilled he is. It helps. Like, the education matters. Absolutely. Like, some of these knights have been training since they were kids because they could afford to, and that matters. Let me ask a question here real quick. Yeah. How old is, approximately, could you guess how old Baylor Makar are at this point in the story? Well, we don't have to guess. We have precise numbers on them. Uh, okay. Let's see. Makar was... If I remember, I don't have it in front of me, but I think Makar was 18 in at the Blackfire Rebellion at the Battle of Redgrass Field. He might, maybe he was 21. He was either 18 or 20. Maybe Baylor was 21. I think Makar was 18. So that would put him at 31 or 32 now. So he's early 30s. We'll just say early 30s right now. And How old is Stannis? Stannis. At the time of Game of Thrones, where we know him best. That's also about his age. Um, a little about older. About the same I think age. a okay. little bit older. I think like early, yeah. mid-30s. I was thinking maybe that Makor was 24 and Stannis was 39 and uh, just a difference in wisdom and experience in life might have uh, affected their mentalities. But if they're about the same age, then Makor has no excuse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think, I'm guessing that the Baratheons never quite got to this level where they were throwing, ma- people were throwing matches to them in tournaments and things like that, right? Like, uh, not, I guess the circumstances may not even come up in the first place. I mean, Renly did some jousting, but by the time Robert's king, they're already like, no, you shouldn't joust anymore because, well, we saw what happened. We saw, you know, when he yeah. tried to enter the melee, Cersei tried to con him th- through reverse psychology <laughs> to doing exactly that. I mean, we already see everyone throwing it to Lionel Baratheon. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. I like, um, Lionel is a, a, a great pivot here because he's obviously so similar to, to his ancestor or his descendant, Robert. But it's the same kind of thing where you think even this guy isn't really that chivalrous. Like, he's not unchivalrous, but is it really chivalrous to laugh at your opponent? Like, <laughs> like before, you're like, <laughs> you're just like, like, this guy challenged me. Bah, ah, ah, ah. Bah, he's just laughing the whole time. I mean, <laughs> and then he get then we get to that part where he's knocking their like fancy hood ornaments off their helmets and throwing it into the crowd. Like, I mean, I I like that. It's he's basically Robin Hooding their helmets, but I don't know if that counts as chivalrous. Like looting them <laughs> during the tournament. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of the things he's doing is making him more 
popular or famous even, even if they're not as chivalrous necessarily. He's not doing anything specifically not chivalrous. Like a lot of times you sort of associate a level of maybe professionalism or stoicism with chivalry, but it's not necessarily part of it, right? Yeah, that's true. Um, so, uh, but, so you could see from the surface why someone might not think Lionel is chivalrous, but he isn't necessarily not chivalrous. Yeah. But one or the other, he's making himself more popular. So. so one of the things that Dunk brings up when he's trying to convince them, if we, if we recap real quickly, he, bring, he talks to Manfred Dondarrion first and talks about how he squired for Sir Arlen and Arlen was part of the army that went to go into Dorne to fight the Vulture King. Well, there's been a couple of Vulture Kings, but this was a particularly notable example. This wasn't that long ago, only a few years ago. He says three years passed. And, well, mm, that might not have been the best thing to bring up. Like, it worked, like, you'd think it was. Like, I, I, like in a vacuum, in a nutshell, you would be like, yeah, this is a smart thing to bring up a connection. But this, there's a lot of ill will around this whole thing. The Vulture King was a pretty substantial rebellion. It's very hard to believe that he didn't have support from some of the other lords who didn't support him openly, right? They didn't openly back him because that would make them rebels too. But he did so well and had so many men and wasn't contained. Like it's, it's the local Dornish lords didn't stop him either. It, it fell to the Iron Throne, even though his base was in Dorn. So there's a lot of ill will over this. It's kind of suspicious that he got going so far and there's, they had to go into Dorn and, and fight in the Red Mounds, which is a really horrible place to, to have a campaign. So I don't know. He may have lost some, some people. He may not like thinking about it. He may like, yeah, that was a whole big cluster F. A lot of negativity around that event. And it may remind him of, of the unease that still exists between Dorne and uh, the rest of the realm. Because as we've been over several times, this is in that interim period where there's still a lot of uh, ill will on both sides. And it's just coming. It's, it's going to take a generation or two before these things kind of smooth out. Aziz, is cluster F kind of like control F? <laughs> <laughs> it is, yeah. You're kind of like, uh, <laughs> you're trying to, trying to find... So maybe like the opposite of control F, cluster F. <laughs> yeah, it's control Z, yeah, cluster Z. <laughs> but also, this is another, like speaking on, on terms of like chivalry and the feudal responsibility of a lord to their vassals. Like this is pretty crappy what Manfred does here. Like, it's not strict here. Like, Dunk isn't his business. It's not his responsibility. But usually, when you're like, hey, my master fought for you, usually that's supposed to be a thing to to say, hey, okay, good job. You know, like, I appreciate that. You're supposed to at least be nice to the guy, right? So this is kind of, it's kind of odd. Or it's just more of this classism. Like, just get away from me, rope belt man, you know? Yeah, I was going to say, probably if Dunk had shining armor on, you know, he might have like, oh, yes, come join me. Of course, I remember Arlen, yeah. But when he present the way he's presenting himself, the same guy, if he had seen Dunk, well, I was going to say the same guy, if he had seen Dunk perform in the tournament, might have been like, actually, Dunk keeps losing right away. (laughs) (laughs) It's pretty unfortunate. It's kind of sad. It's like, yeah, this guy was 
these are the kind of men that you rely on to fill, to fill out your armies and to, to go when things get tough. You add hedge knights and free riders and these other guys. They they're an important part of the army. Maybe not the core of it, but they they certainly bleed and sweat and and die alongside your regular men. So yeah, this this lack of respect is really notable. And this is one of the things I really want to focus on this episode: the Brienne connections. Now, when you compare Dunk to Brienne, and of course, there's just infinite connections we can make. They both have social issues to overcome. For Brienne, it's her gender, quite obviously. She's accepted, quote-unquote, accepted in quotes, (laughs) not fully accepted, but because of her birth, because she's noble. They can't outright reject her. They don't tell her to leave. They just make it miserable for her so that she'll want to leave on her own. But she's just so tough and, and determined that it doesn't work. She's like, yeah, make fun of me all you want. I'm not going anywhere. For Dunk, it's obviously not his gender, it's his birth. It's the opposite. It's the gender is, is, is the issue that gets thrown in Brienne's face. And Dunk, no one's making fun of him for being a man. They're making fun of him for being poor and for being uneducated and, and lowborn and all that. So it's a different flavor of rejection, but it, you, know, you can make a lot of, draw a lot of comparisons between those two. I was just thinking a minute ago, we were talking about the Baratheons and chivalry, how there's similar, like one has one and the other has the other, and they end up facing similar dilemmas or being judged similarly or whatever. I was thinking about Robert and Stannis, how Robert is not very chivalrous at all, (laughs) right? But kind of like Lionel, he's popular. He does things that make him play. He's a great warrior. He's kind of boisterous. He, He even like pardons enemies. You know, he does a lot of things that make him popular. But in the meantime, he's cheating on his wife. He's drunk. Stannis, I think, is pretty chivalrous. I think he's pretty adherent to the code of chivalry, but he's terse, he's mean and cold, so he's not popular, even though he is chivalrous. It's, and I think Martin is likes to play around with like having two characters with with certain elements that are opposed to each other, but but still creating a parallel at the same time. Yeah, and I would say like obviously there's some things that Robert is chivalrous about, something that Stannis isn't. Like Stannis is right, like yeah. the terseness. I think like being polite is a function of chivalry. I think, and and yeah, being. Yeah kind to your beaten foe. I think that's chivalrous too, but you're right. But you're right. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. The examples. It's not like Robert has no chivalry or right. Stannis is the epitome of it. But generally speaking, I think Stannis has more than Robert, uh, but Robert is more popular than Stannis. So. Right. And these aren't, these aren't like distinct concepts. It's not like there's some book of chivalry that clearly defines yeah. what is and isn't chivalry. It's very much in the eye of the beholder. And the, the way we rate them within that framework, like some people might really value the politeness as a function of chivalry. But some people might think that's, ah, that's lower down on the list. The most important thing is to protect, you know, people is to be, you know, stand up for what's right. So, and that's, of course, a really important point here. Like, Dunk perhaps did the most important nightly thing there is here, standing up for someone who couldn't stand up for themselves against someone that was stronger than them, and just like Brienne does. And perhaps if we could try to get at what makes chivalry uh, what's the most bullseye concept amongst that group of ideas? It, it might be that. What would you What would you think? Is there is something else come to mind for you, or do you kind of agree with that? I, I kind of agree with that. I was going to say it's very easy to be chivalrous among a bunch of other chivalrous people. Okay. Right? When everyone is nice and kind and helpful and you're hanging out with each other, but when all of a sudden you have to stand up to the prince, right? Yeah. It's, it's tougher to be chivalrous in some situations than other, and some people might back down and some people stand up. 
And those are the truly chivalrous ones. You know, when you do it, when you're really being tested and do it anyway, I think that's uh, the proof, if you will. That's a great point because, yeah, when it's just times of peace, it's real easy to be, to be all polite and friendly and just like, yeah, we get we all get along. Yeah, look how, you know. But yeah, when something goes wrong, that's when the real test comes. And yeah, like Dunk, the real test came to Dunk. And well, <laughs> I guess... You'd have to say he passed. I mean, he was lucky yeah, to yeah. survive it. <laughs> this is a, a little abstract, maybe, but if all the knights really wanted to be chivalrous, they would probably all be closer to Dunk. They'd be closer to Hedge Knights. They would be like, I don't know, the, the Peace Corps, the Salvation Army. Sure. They wouldn't be like running tournaments, seeing who can attack each other with sticks better. They'd be out with poor people, helping them plow their farms and teaching them how to read, you know? Yeah, vows of uh, poverty are absolutely a thing that a lot of religious folk think is not just, not just religious folk, but that certainly is associated with a lot of religious folk. monks. It's a really big, um, common thing with, with monks of all sorts of belief systems to, yeah, to, to live in virtual poverty or complete poverty or something close to that. Uh, one of my, and you don't have to necessarily be in complete poverty, but you also don't have to have every outfit be worth yeah. the entire possessions of, of, of a poor person of, you know, of a, a local farmer or whatever, you know, you could, put some of at least your time into helping those people, if not some of your wealth. You know what? That's a really, that's a, something that that was a really good line in the show was when the High Sparrow points out like how expensive Marjorie's dress was. She's like, how many thousands of hours did someone yeah. spend making that? Like how many hours of labor? I thought that was a really poignant way to do it. That was a good line. And it's here. You're right. Like that really comes up here. Like how many, how much wealth goes into just one of those like helmets that got like how many people could be fed for like the silver yeah. on just one fancy helmet like that. Yeah. So yeah, the, the income inequality in Westeros is really just off the charts, but that's, it's a, that's reflective of several different periods in real history throughout the world, not just including in- modern times. You know? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah, it's funny too, just as a side note here, Baylor, he's got more ability to be a peacemaker. He outranks everybody except his father. So like, if he's like, hey, y'all, chill, they're going to be like, okay, we'll chill. But not just because he's making a good point, but because of who he is. Like, yeah, the prince is telling us to chill. I guess we should chill. If, if someone like Dunk would be like, hey, yo, chill, they'd be like, shut up hedge night, you know, like it just, <laughs> he could make the exact same points, the exact same truths, cite the exact same evidence. And they'd still be like, shut up hedge night. It's easy to blow it off. Yeah. yeah. They would stop listening before the first sentence is done, right? Like they would, their hackles are raised. They're already resisting it, right? There are like, the thing they've been taught about class starts to come before <laughs> he's even done speaking, right? It's like this reaction. Yeah, so it's neat that Baylor is the peacemaker, though, in another sense, because that was his, that was like the point of his marriage, the par- his parents' marriage, not his marriage. Like, he's the product of Targaryen marrying Dorn. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he really yeah. is embodying it in a lot of ways. It's another interesting thing you got to think about is how much was Baylor raised to play this role versus yeah. Magar. That's a good point, because he's the first Maybe son. naturally, they were just better and worse people, but uh, but you got to imagine some amount of Baylor's whole life was preparing him for this role. Yeah, that's a really good point. After all, like we've seen the firstborn son is very often like given not just the responsibility of carrying the family name, but carrying on the, the family ideals. Like, you complete my work, son. You know, that kind of thing. I carry on house tasks or whatever, carry on my legacy, that sort of thing. And, and yeah, 
Um, and da- and Daron, right, Baylor's father, was carrying on Baylor the Blessed's legacy. And that's an extreme legacy of peace. I mean, talk about a, a peaceful guy. There, you really can't get any more peaceful than Baylor the Blessed. His attitude towards peace was arguably a little insane. But still, you, you kind of appreciate it anyway. <laughs> I was just thinking about the idea of like carrying on the legacy. How uh, Egg's mother... She was Danish, right? Uh, yeah, she was from Danish. <laughs> yeah, she was from House Dane, yes. And Egg recommends Dunk put the the falling star on his shield, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, so actually, that's a good segue because if you recall, someone in the books, I can't remember who it was, mocked, to, I think, Tom 07's for rhyming carry on with Dondarion and you just said carry on <laughs> the legacy. So, and our, oh, and our yeah. next topic is the Dondarion sigil, which is a segue to Dunk sigil and the falling star with House Dane and all that. So well played, Sean, <laughs> you've done well. So yeah, this story of House Dondarion is like a lot of founding myths. It's kind of hard to believe that it really happened like that. But I don't know that it, the point isn't whether it really happened or not. The point is, I think, to provide us with some symbolic resonance. I mean, you can take from it what you want, but there's this very similar aspect to the shooting star and this lightning kind of out of nowhere because like this lightning, it saved this this messenger, right? It was hugely important. It saved House Dondarrion as well or saved this the Storm King. Likewise, you wrote later in the document that this arguably, this is the luckiest thing, like meeting egg was the luckiest thing Dunk could have happened. And he's realizing it right as he's yeah. seeing the, the shooting star. So it's a real similar, even like a bolt, two purple, like purple lightning, a bolt from the blue, or it's like bolt from the purple. A message from the sky. Yeah. <laughs> so it's really neat because that, there's so much about the sigils here that George just adds this, this extra character that he's kind of a jerk. We love his ancestor. His ancestor, Beric, is great. Like, he's a great character. And he's very knightly, right? Like, Beric, extremely knightly. Like, one of the best examples of someone that has knightly ideals in the main series that is also, like, highborn. You know, that's, you know, Brienne's obviously top example, I would think, or one of the top examples. But Beric Dondarrion, right? He's a really good example of, he's like, nope, we got to fight for these people. These common folk need our help. Yeah, he his I don't know loyalty to or instructions from some higher import some higher lord or power or whatever are less relevant to him to the fundamental duties of a knight. Yeah, and but but for him it's both too because Robert they're like carrying on the orders from their king. Yeah, yeah, the king or well, but like even when the king's gone, it doesn't matter. I'm still doing. The king told me to do the right thing. I'm still doing it, whether he's there or not. Yeah, yeah. the king is more like that's supporting their argument rather than necessarily the main thing (laughs) that they're about. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Um, You know, this is a a little tangent too, but I just can't help but thinking about like the lightning bolt and the shooting star, and and even earlier we talked about like how in this world as an Ivanhoe, there's this legitimate belief in the power of God. And and in in this world, the, we are more certain of the reality of mystical happenings than in our world. But even in our world, all our religions are full of stories of people walking on water and lightning bolts from the sky and stuff like that. And Carl Sagan talked about the idea, just kind of like imagining early humankind. It, it, it kind of makes sense that we would come up with the idea of gods being in the sky. 
Because think of how mystifying, mm. once we start to understand eventually after thousands of years, how weather and electricity and the circulation of the sun and everything make, we can make sense of it all. But com- it must have been just completely baffling. And what's happening in the heavens, the he- you know, and how it comes down and affects us, it makes sense that we came up with the idea of gods up in the sky controlling our destinies and such. And even as society gets more evolved and develops culture and certain understanding, we still look to messages from the sky of lightning bolts and shooting stars to our luck or our omens for when, what we should do with crops, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it's true. It is. If you really try to sit back and think about it, it is like try to put yourself in the place of ancient mankind, ancient humankind, ancient people. Yeah, what's what's going on up there? <laughs> how do you how do you see lightning and not think that's magic? Yeah, like what the yeah. hell is that? Yeah, mm-hmm. like you got to call it something and yeah, like well, gods, sure, why not? Yeah. One point Carl Sagan made, he was like imagine if you're sitting at your campfire, you're a little tribe, and off in a distance miles away, there's some other tribe sitting at their campfire. It would look like just a little speck of light in a distance. When you look up in the sky, so kinds of specks of light in a distance. Those must be campfires of some magical beings that just can float in the air, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, just like a lot of these things, they came, someone invented a reason long ago and, and that got passed down from father and mother to son and daughter and just kept on going. And, you know, a lot of... And even some suspicious, skeptical young kid, like, what argument do you have against him? Like, I guess there are gods up in the sky. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You could, like, the idea of, like, proving it, you know, evidence first is didn't necessarily... Yeah. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> so when he goes back to his camp, of course, he's got Egg sitting there and, like, Egg's just being a squire. He's like, look, I'm going to be a squire. I'm your squire and I'm going to prove it to you. And look, man, you need a squire. Look at you. Come on. You need me. (laughs) It's pretty effective. It's like this combination of pointing to the obvious and just being stubborn, just kind of knowing that, you know, he's going to win this argument. Like, he's going to convince this guy. Like, his points are too strong. Also, he's just, he's got this attitude because he's a prince himself. Never forget Egg is a prince. And it's one of the, you know, recurring things that happens. He says what's on his mind. He says blunt truths partly because he's the fourth son of a king. Like this is, it's like Jerry and Lannister. If you remember him, that he's the, the, the youngest of Tywin's brothers. He's the one that just was sarcastic and just commented on everything because like he's the youngest. There's all these, everyone's taking all the good jobs, you know, Tywin just looms <laughs> over everyone. So he's just like sits back and comments on everything. We've seen this trope before. The rich kid who's like not the firstborn, he's like, big family and he just is like kind of aloof and just you know says the uh, what's really happening because why not no one's gonna stop him he's got this sort of interesting perch to look down on everyone and really see what's happening but without the day-to-day constant like you're gonna be the next this or that you know (laughs) so it's like this kind of in-between state there i like thinking about egg that way he has enough power and position to not be too worried about getting in trouble. Yeah. But not enough power and position to feel responsible for trouble he might cause. Right. Like, you know? if Baylor's out here, you know, insulting people, it's a bigger problem than Makar or even Arian. Like, like, what Arian gets away with is wild compared to what Baylor doesn't 
just the way he behaves. So like, he doesn't try to get away with much at all, apparently. Um, but if Arian was the firstborn, you'd be sure that there would be some consternation. So here's a quote. What's your name? Dunk, he said. The wretched boy laughed aloud as if that was the funniest thing he'd ever heard. Dunk, he said. Sir Dunk. That's no name for a knight. Is it short for Duncan? Was it? The old man had called him Dunk for as long as he could recall, and he did not remember much of his life before. Isn't that wild to think about? Like, he doesn't know his own name. I mean, it's one thing to be like, he doesn't know exactly how old he is. You can kind of get that because like, hey, Westeros doesn't have birth certificates and Oh, they do have dates, but they don't have a census bureau or a place that keeps all this information. Most families just they, they just might have it. dates, but they don't have days of the week, do they? Uh, not do they? I don't know. They have hours. It's something I saw someone point out yeah, I that I don't. that ever since I've realized, I don't think they ever say Tuesday or Monday. No, they don't. Yeah. <laughs> they, sometimes they'll say a week from now or or a fortnight, yep. but I don't think they have days of the week. Yeah, I don't think they do either. So Theon, of course, would be very disappointed. You have to know your name, right? <laughs> you know, so Dunk. The, the only person who'd be more disappointed is Reek. I, but I think one of the ways they do it is just by moons. Yeah, the moons are... Yeah, yeah, five of, of moon five, you know, a More year. of a moon, yeah, more of a monthly cycle rather than a weekly cycle, I guess. They may not even think of week, like a week may not. Do they even have that designation of week? May not. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> week is like that. That's not necessarily even a category of time. They have that. Yeah, they have like fortnight and weeks they and moon's week. okay. turn and, you know, tomorrow. You know. Clearly, it's not something I've ever looked into specifically. <laughs> Dunk, it's, it's another irony, another reversal. Dunk is trying to distinguish himself. Egg is trying to undistinguish himself. <laughs> He's like, no, I want to be less like that. You want to be more like that? I want to be less like that. Dunk is a strong, healthy, near adult, you know, young man. Yeah, I got to find some work. <laughs> Egg is like a little kid, a rich little kid. It's like, I got a job. I'm yeah. Now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Uh, now, here comes my um, favorite quote of the whole book, whole novella, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, really? yeah I love this quote. Egg soon fell asleep beside the dying fire. Dunk Lane is back nearby, his big hands behind his head, gazing up at the night sky. He could hear distant music from the turning grounds, half a mile away. The stars were everywhere, thousands and thousands of them. One fell as he was watching, bright green streak that flashed across the black and then was gone. The falling star brings luck to him who sees it, Dunk thought, but the rest of them are all in their pavilions by now, staring up at silk instead of sky. So the luck is mine alone. Yeah, I just love it in part because this is part of his emotional intelligence that we talked about last time that he finds ways to get confident. You know, this is this of confidence is a form of emotional intelligence and he's looking for, he's, he's using like creative thinking to give himself a mental edge. Right. Um, and he believes it. He's not just like working himself up. This is um, something he feels. It's something that he trusts this instinct. It's not like, telling yourself something that you don't really believe, you know, like, uh, I'm, I'm brave. No, I'm, you know, I'm ready for this, you know, like psyching yourself up this, he seems to sincerely believe this, at least the way it's written. That's how I took it. I love this, just this attitude of showing reasons why his situation is better than someone who's rich and, and potentially corrupted by that wealth. He's like, look, he's, he's looking on the bright side. 
right? And you can't see the bright side when you're in a tent. <laughs> like the brightness yeah. of that star is only visible to him because of his scenario. So like it's the epitome of looking on the bright side, right? He's like, well, I don't have these things they have, but I have this instead. And it's a really great thing. So I'm really happy with that. Yeah, I also like the idea that um, Dunk is, it, it's like uh, giving some value to his lack of wealth or whatever, right? He's out under the stars. And everyone else has their fancy tents, but they're missing out on real experience, the, the potential for luck or whatever. Also, I see a note here that I got it backwards that Dunk wanted the falling star. Egg pointed out the elm tree. I guess that's a note that Nina made. So Yeah, I think, and that's, I guess that's important because Egg, as we talked about, he doesn't have a huge connection to his, his Dane family, given his mother died young. Uh, he may not have, he may have known her very little at all. Like he, maybe she died when he was like two, uh, maybe even younger than that. Not much younger, obviously. <laughs> I just wanted to take note of Arian, how hateful he is to the Dornish there, despite his mother being Dornish, Ooh. which also made me wonder mm. how well he knew her. You know, he wouldn't have been that old maybe when she died. That's a good point. I wonder if maybe he wants to distance himself from the Dorn. Like maybe he's oh. like frustrated that his mother was Dorn. Yeah, I think he know? maybe could have some self-hatred there as well. I'm sure it's possible he'd gotten made fun of or teased for it, perhaps. But there had been, a, a you know, some Dornish intermarriage at that point. I feel like the Targaryens wouldn't have been too mean to each other about Dornish love. It's yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, like it might be more painful in some ways because it depends. It just really depends. We just don't know. It might be less painful. I'll, I'll use myself as an example. I have I have half siblings because my mother and father had me when I when they were young, and then they they split up. And he when my father had kids with another woman. I don't really have a lot of ill will towards my father because I never knew him. I have no memory of him at all. I've never met him. He was gone when I was six months old. My siblings, who are three of them in, in particular, have the same mother, and he left them also, but they were of an age to remember it. So they have, you know, much stronger feelings on the matter because they remember it happening. And uh, the age at which that happens is the age at which you have to process it. You don't, obviously, you can't just, like, I'm going to think about this five years from now. No, you <laughs> think about it when your mom or dad leaves, that's when, you, that's when it hits you. So the age you're at is like, what formative stage are you at when this hugely impactful event in your life happens? And that's, yeah, that's a problem for us here because we just don't know with Egg. Um, we can estimate because he's only a certain age. It had to be within this certain time frame. But we, so we can be very sure that his brothers had more time with their mother and may have known them and, and, and would have had potentially much stronger bonds with her and yeah, and we also just don't know what kind of person she was. For all we know, she sucked. <laughs> you know, she may have been... Yeah, yes. Like, I assume she was decent, but I think that's just because I have a Dane bias. For Like, there's no reason to... Yeah, she was it. more like Dark Star. Yeah, and she could have been that's where Arian got all of this. <laughs> like, that is... It's, it's also... <laughs> it's also possible that maybe she wasn't necessarily terrible, but she might not have been excited about this marriage. She might have been forced into this marriage. She might have loved someone else. This marriage is arranged by her parents. She's doing what she has to do, but she doesn't like it. Maybe turn to alcohol, Cersei-ish kind of scenario or something, you know. That is what happened with the prior generation, in fact. Aegon the Unlikely, Aegon the Fourth, right? He's the one that had all the bastards, all the great bastards, Damon Blackfire being one of them. So he basically is responsible for the Blackfire rebellions because he legitimized Damon and all that. His 
mother is uh, left when they were really young. She was from Lease, and she did not like Westeros, and Westeros didn't really like her. There was some stuff early in her life where they tried to, you know, she was part of the secret siege. She was trapped in the Red Keep when there was a coup attempt and all this other stuff. Uh, and she left, and her kids didn't like that, as <laughs> you wouldn't think, like, right? Like, Aemon, Aemon the Dragon Knight and Aegon the Unlikely, or Aegon the, Unlo- uh, the Unworthy. Like, that had to have a huge impact on them, too. And it may be part of why Aegon the, Un- the Unworthy was such a bad king. You can't pin it all on his mother, obviously. That's a bit much. Uh, okay, let's move on. That was a pretty good little diversion. But So the actual decision of the shield. Like the she he goes to get the shield painted. Baylor tells Dunk that you can't inherit Arlen's arms because you're not his son. Now, actually, Baylor is probably exaggerating what's law and what's custom, but when Baylor directly tells you this, you're not going you can't exactly just, yeah. Yeah, you're like, oh, well, he It's sort of law now. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, you just told me what how it works. So, uh so he basically has been told you can't use that sigil. And so he has to choose something. The color of sunset, because Arlen likes sunsets. That's just, ah, that gets you in the feels there. He's trying to maintain, preserve some of who Sir Arlen was. He wants to commemorate. I think commemorate is probably the right word here. So he is sort of taking this rule of not using this previous sigil but we see like it, the inspire. It's inspired by the previous sigil. And that's the kind of thing we see all over. We've seen like people take on new sigils based on something that happened. Like Raleigh Duckfield, who is a great example because he's a, a parallel to Dunk in so many ways. His thing as well. I was in a field and I looked up and there were ducks. So Duckfield, <laughs> <laughs> like it's you. It's sometimes it's more creative than that. Oh, actually, it's, it's usually more creative than that because that's about as basic as you can get. You can at least be more embellished than that. He could have been Hawkfield or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it doesn't have to be a compound word, man. You can do... It could be a little he, more... Basically, dynamic. the epitome of the, the trope in TV where someone can't come up with their name. So they just like... Their eyes go look around the room and they're like, my name is... Of Shad Guitar Light. <laughs> Lamp Man. Lamp, yeah. <laughs> What's the name of your dentist? <laughs> Dr. Crentist. <Crentice. laughs> Sounds a lot like maybe that's why he became a dentist. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, totally. So this this really <laughs> this fits really well. You feel that. Like, this is, this is sort of chivalrous. He's carrying on the tradition of the man who taught him. He's paying homage to the guy that made him what he is, the guy that pulled him out of the gutters and maybe didn't enrich him, but gave him enough to work with, right? The man that taught him pretty much everything he knows, the guy that gave him a chance in life. So of course you want to, you know, remember that and be inspired by that and, and uh, trying to remember the man that, that was basically his father, you know? And that's what all these houses do. All these famous houses, that's a big thing. It's like we're carrying on the traditions of our ancestors. Dunk is... He's capturing the soul of that by remembering the person instead of this, this house that contains these people, right? And as for the elm tree itself, it's pretty, pretty perfect as a symbol as well uh, for the sigil. After all, uh, he's sleeping under this tree. It really says hedge night. I mean, it's not a hedge, it's a tree, but it's, <laughs> it's just one step up, yeah. I guess, you know? It's one of the nicer trees, you know? 
there's also maybe some um, allusion to the idea of being rooted. That, it, that ah. it's you know the core's fundamental uh, Dunk's fundamental values are very strong and rooted. Earthly, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good way to put it. A man of the earth. To the ground and the earth more so than to some castle or some weapon or whatever else. You know? Yeah, that's a good point. It's it reminds us of what's his name, Septon Maribald, who just lived off the land. In fact, he didn't even like literally didn't even wear shoes. <laughs> so like, talk about close to the earth. <laughs> that guy was taking it to another level. But you know, just much as we respect Septon Maribald, it's some of these same things are here with Dunk. It's like obviously Maribald's been doing his thing for decades and Dunk's just getting started. But you see some of the same sort of elements in that. Uh, or maybe a better example would be Elder Brother. the Because the, he used to be a knight, the one that's... Uh, the, and Brienne meets Elder Brother and, and Sandor, of course. So that's also pretty fitting, I think, to bring him up. Because he's a really big guy. Like, Brienne looks at him and is like, well, this guy used to be a warrior. And then he <laughs> just goes on and makes some points back exactly like that. And Maribald was a warrior too. He has that... Describes that story where he... His friends were all under-equipped, but they were excited about battle and it all went terrible and he was basically the only one that survived. And yeah, that's the other side of living close to the earth is getting forced to fight uh, for a cause you don't understand or believe in or even have all the information on. And, and then all of a sudden you're- Which Dunk also experiences. Yep, you're right. And then, and then all of a sudden you're on someone else's side. You're like, nope, now you're on my side because I said so. And yeah. More of that in the next story on Duncan Egg. That gets brought up a little more with those peasants who are like, wait, who are we fighting? <laughs> what, what is going on here? Yeah, you really, that, that concept really gets brought out even more there. Now, and, and another great point here from Nina, by including the shooting star, Dunk distinguishes himself from other hedge knights. There, must, there might be thousands of hedge knights roaming the Seven Kingdoms, but only he had received its luck. This tourney would fundamentally change Dunk's life. Like, he did get lucky. It looked bad, like bad luck, but a number of lucky things that totally set his career going forward happen within this like 24-hour span here. Baylor should have been sleeping outside. <laughs> he did need a little more luck, I think. <laughs> yep. It was definitely not his good luck. Hmm. <laughs> but on Brienne's side, let's talk about Brienne for a second. We know that this is how we know. Let's, let's go through the connection here. So in, in case some of you all aren't familiar with why Brienne's shield scene is so important. So first of all, Brienne uh, is confronted by Sir Illifer, who has been uh, a part of our cast of characters in this discussion. Uh, in our first episode, we brought him up because he is an actual hedge knight. Sir Illifer crooked a bony finger at her shield. Though its paint was cracked and peeling, the device wore it showed plain. A black bat on a field divided bendwise, silver and gold. You bear a liar shield to which you have no right my grandfather's grandfather helped kill the last of Lothston. None since has dared show that bat. Black as the deeds of them that bore it. Well, first of all, Illifer's grandfather's grandfather should be around around this time. <laughs> if he if he yeah, helped yeah. put the Lostons down, that's only about that's only about 20 years from from this point, about 23, 24 years. So that dude was probably already alive. Maybe he was just born or something like that. But yeah, that's uh just drawing a little connecting dot here. So what happens is Jamie gets this shield, this, this uh, shield of House Lothston, which is hard to say, and gives it to Brienne. Then Brienne carries it to Maidenpool, where she's told, you know, that sigil is, you know, that's a bad sigil. 
And this is, of course, Sir Illifer says the same thing before she gets there. So she's like, I'm going to get it painted. And that's a really important moment because she says, I want to get it painted. And the person at the gate is like, oh, really? Well, my sister does painting. So that was a, a good thing for her to say because it, this guy can now do his sister a solid and send her some business, which is exactly what happens. And so she remembers, and here's the moment. Here's the quote where she has this thought. The arms of Tarth were quartered rose in azure and bore a yellow sun and crescent moon. But so long as men believed her to be a murderess, Brand dare not carry them. Rodor reminds me of an old shield I once saw in my father's armory. She described the arms as best she could recall them. It was more a picture than a proper coat of arms, and the sight of it took her back through the long years to the cool dark of her father's armory. She remembered how she'd run her fingertips across the cracked and fading paint, over the green leaves of the tree, and along the path of the falling star. It really spoke to her. She was really into this shield. She really liked it. And uh, we're uh, supposed to linger on it as readers to maybe let it sink in or have it realize, have us realize one day that this is the exact same shield <laughs> that we were just described by Dunk Sigil here. Interesting. In the next book, Lady Rohan does the same thing. She, uh, kind of flirting with Dunk, rubs her fingers across the the sigil on his chest. Oh, and uh, also interesting convenience of someone for both of them being right there. Oh, I can paint a shield. You know, like both <laughs> yeah. of them, Duncan Brian both had that convenient yeah. artist on hand. Yeah, true. Like, it, it, of course, in a city like, in a town like Maidenpool, of course there would be one. But it, the coincidence of being the gate guard's sisters, <laughs> that's, that's where that comes <laughs> up. And then, you, but, and then like here at a tournament. There's going to be some painters, but, uh, you know... Um, <laughs> Apparently women. Yeah, I guess so. Uh, Seems yeah. to do this painting a lot. It's not a manly job. <laughs> the world needs more painters. My grandmother was a painter. Our house is fold with her, fold? filled with her art. <laughs> we took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Speaking of Brienne, another thing that they have in common. Brienne's big. She, people say big for a woman, but no, she's just big, period, right? She's larger than most men, and which does make her big for a woman, but let's put it in perspective. Hmm. She's just big, period. Dunk is also just big, period, but also for a man, just big. Almost everyone is smaller than Dunk. What's interesting is to me as well is that we don't have that POV in A Song of Ice and Fire. When you think of A Song of Ice and Fire, who's the largest person that we have a POV from? I, I was probably Brienne. Like that's Brienne. Yeah. yeah, like like physically the largest person is her, which doesn't exactly tell us what it's like to be a large man in this setting because a large man gets respected, whereas Brienne gets looked down on for being a freak of nature. Now, we readers don't look at her that way, at least I hope we don't. But in world, she's not her size doesn't make people don't it's a totally different reaction. People look at Duncan like, oh, this guy is big and strong. Like, we can make use of him. Where for Brienne, it's like, what's wrong with her? Like, it's so backwards. But it still comes out in actual fighting. The, the advantages they have. 
one of Brienne's advantages is, is she's taught to play defense uh, because these guys will tire themselves out trying to beat her uh, quickly because they don't want it said that a woman tested them. Now, of course, that's not a thing for Dunk at all, although it is a little bit because they don't want it said that a hedge knife tested them. Someone like Baylor doesn't care, although he was clear to point out, no, it was four lances, not seven. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so there's still a little bit of pride in there. But of course, that's also just truth, apparently just truth. But there is still like that same attitude, like you don't want it said that a hedge knight tested you. Perhaps the best example of this that I can think of, Ron, not a hedge knight, but may as well be. When he goes up against... He's like a step down. He's a sellsword. Yeah, right? yeah. So when he goes up against Sir Vardis Egan, th think about how confident all the knights were. They're like, oh, this is going to be easy. Sir Vardis, no problem. Like, Bron, this, this Bron character, he's doomed. Like, he's just a sellsword. You know, when there's a bunch of them and they can gang up on you, then they're dangerous. But one-on-one, -on -one, oh, please, please. Yeah. Like, their prejudice is over. It's so over the top. It's wild how much it distorts their view of reality. Like, no, this guy's sword is just as sharp. I mean, he might be better at fighting. Like, how? Do, why is he better at fighting? Because the uh, he's he's not as rich. Like, it just doesn't make any damn sense. <laughs> he's had to do more of it. Yeah, yeah. You're right. It's almost the opposite. Wish we, yeah. Wish we brought this up when I had my brawn shirt on last. <laughs> brawn just has brains and brawn. Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Imagine if he also had brand. <laughs> <laughs> brains brawn and bran <laughs> triple threat <laughs> <laughs> but this ignores some of the advantages these characters have like right yeah brawn has the advantage of knowing how to fight dirty these knights look down on quote that. unquote dirty right they look down on it e yeah. even though it's an advantage <laughs> it's like it's a strange distortion of reality like it's it's really hard to when you really illuminate these blind spots, they look really silly, right? But it's not unrealistic because this seems to be reflected by lots of things in, in the real world that people just look down on for no good reason, just because of what it's, it's the package it's wrapped up in. You know, it's not quite this simple, but our friend Rudy one time pointed out, you know who wins a fight? The person who realizes it's a fight first. Ooh, that, yeah. Like when you really, when the person realizes they call it, we're going to kill each other. The person who realizes that first, that's who's going to win. Now, obviously, if if one person's seven foot, two hundred eighty pounds, and the other one's five foot, one hundred twenty pounds, maybe that's not true. But uh, <laughs> assuming it's a near close match, otherwise, and also think about the idea of like fighting dirty, how knights might look down. Like I, they, they have to be hypocritical to not. No one did anything dirtier than Arian, right? Yeah. That's like by far the dirtiest thing Definitely. I could think of that anyone did. Like maybe some dirtiness like in, we see in future, you know, Uthor, uh, what's his underleaf yeah. or whatever, they, they, fixing the rounds and stuff. Maybe that's as dirty as killing a horse, but I don't even think so. Uh, yeah, I agree with you. Even Loris? Even Loris? Is, is that a dirty trick using the, the mare and heat, you know, like? I have that as an item to talk about. We'll come back to that. So I yeah. think, yeah, I think it is. I mean, it is a trick. It's uh, it's not as bad as killing the horse, although <laughs> it did result yeah. in the horse being killed indirectly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to Gregor, but I don't blame Loris for that. And some of these maybe are a little different in the tournament, right? Yeah. When there's sort of, it's a sort of a different set of rules than when you get to like the fight to the death, the trial by combat. You know, maybe it's a little bit, certain rules are out the window or whatever but yeah. yeah yeah i mean 
Dunk himself thinks about how he's fighting dirty in that that trial by combat, that trial by seven, right? But like you say, yeah. that is a fight to the death. I don't really think it's that dirty. Yeah, yeah. Like, Except yeah. that they I'd were, they were in the mud. Yeah. They were dirty yeah. from rolling around, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So there's another sort of, there's a, a couple of bits of history in here. Obviously, we, we talked about the sigil stuff, but there's also this Florian and John Keel story. This is important setup because, well, this central conflict really starts because of Tancel being attacked by Arian and the Florian and Jonkiel story is has a lot of parallels to this. Now, the Florian and Jonkiel story isn't super well understood. It's the details of it aren't. It's more of the gist of it is what people respond to rather than the details, right? Florian is a lowborn, maybe a knight. He's called a knight, but it's a good example of where it's it's probably historical revisionism because the Florian and Jonkiel story is way predates knighthood. So it's it's like it's not even like you can Maybe you can, maybe this, the timelines are off a bit. No, it's, they'd have to be way off for him to be a knight, but that's just how it reflects how s- stories change with the time. Great example, the actual Iliad, Homer's Iliad. There's obvious anachronisms in Homer's version of the story, which is a pretty strong evidence, is pretty strong evidence that he changed the story to suit his audience. I like a specific example is I think I've even cited this before is the burials, like the way they do burials. Like his, he, the way he cited burials was anachronistic to the way to the Greeks of the era of the Trojan War. But he was describing current birth practice or current funeral practices. So uh, just one example of many. Historical revisionism is the point being very common. Uh, details like that are added on. The sir, all you have to do is add a sir to to change, you know, to really just like tweak the story <laughs> yeah. here. Uh, but but the central line of the story is all men are fools and all men are knights where women are concerned. (laughs) And that's a way to say, you know, in this case, he's can be her rescuer, but he can also be, you know, her idiot or be like Arian. There's a lot of ways to interpret that. I think there's, it's so so wide open that um, I'm not trying to say this is the only way to interpret it. Did you have an interpretation of that line, Sean, or anything that that brings out of you? Maybe the idea that sometimes uh, there's a fine line, you know, between being chivalrous and being foolish, you know, that sometimes uh, some higher ideal can lose sight of the, the needs of reality or something like that. But uh, yeah, and, and, and you can like put yourself in harm's way, you know, for the sake of a woman or some higher cause or whether it's foolish or chivalrous, sometimes it's hard to say. Hmm. It's also important to remember that the Florian and John Kiel story it takes place, the legendary event of their meeting takes place at Maidenpool, which, of course, we've brought up Maidenpool several times. Brienne goes to Maidenpool. It's one of the reasons George has her go there, probably, to make all this work nicely or to make it work even more. Of course, that's not crucial to any of this, but it's it's nice. It, it's a nice dot connecting. Uh, and it's part of, you know, Brienne's journey, sort of being like a hedge knight. You know, she's on the trail uh, without exactly knowing where the trail is. A few other historical notes here. Um, so we're about to see Abelar Hightower. Abelar Hightower is going to be one of the guys that loses to Valar, quite possibly on purpose. Uh, Abelar could either be the father or grandfather, maybe. Of course, he could be. You never know when a, a lord dies without sons and it passes to a brother or something like that. But 
we have a historical note from around this time, not long after. The Great Plague is going to hit Old Town uh, when Picel is a boy at the Citadel, which is probably only about 10, maybe 20 years from now. The Picel was born in 216. So Picel's born seven years from this, from this where we're at now. And this Quentin Hightower, who would be either this, maybe the grandson or son of this Abelar, is the one who burned all the ships at port, closed the gates, wouldn't let anyone leave, um, which was the right thing to do. It, it was quarantine, right? If he had let people leave, the plague could have spread all over. But he was killed for this. He did the right thing and was killed for it. This is a great example of sort of high-level chivalry. Even though it's caused a lot of suffering, it prevented more suffering. Dunk is a, is a parallel here, right? He did the right thing, and it, and it almost got him killed. He, was, he got lucky and was saved by it. Quentin, not so much. He was murdered. Of course, your name Quentin in this story, you tend to have, <laughs> you tend to have bad luck, whether you do the right You're or on thin right. ice. Yeah, so... You're on thin ice and thick fire. And this is a different <laughs> spelling of Quentin, too. This is Quentin rather than Quentin, but oh well. It doesn't You can't fool the gods with little things like that. Yeah, that's one of those things the Reach and the Dornish fight about. <laughs> Where the Y belongs? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why do they fight over that why the where belongs <laughs> so w- the reason we bring up John Keel and Florian of course is that's one of the not only does it have a bunch of parallels here but it's one of the puppet shows that Tansel is throwing she also has of course Nymeria and the 10,000 ships now Nina suggests Nymeria is maybe a bit of a Dornish nationalist tale but it's not anti it's not anti seven kingdoms because Nymeria didn't tussle with uh, the rest of Westeros that we know of. She was too busy uniting Dorne. And that's pretty cool that she did that. But there wasn't any, a lot of infighting with, uh, with the Seven Kingdoms. I guess it mostly would have been conflicts with the Reach and the Stormlands, as, as it had been for so long. So that's maybe interesting too. But it's maybe even despite the fact that it's not that Nymeria wasn't antagonistic, or a foe to the Reach, it's still probably not the kind of character that, <laughs> that, that people from the Reach are interested in. You know what I mean? Like, maybe this isn't uh, the right show for this audience. Not that it's offensive. The, target, the, the one that gets Arian, that one, you know, maybe that one is. But this is still, this, I don't know, this, this maybe, I, she didn't maybe consider her audience. <laughs> she was playing with fire. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's, let's take a few more examples from the joust itself. So there's this great like interplay of, of we've, we've talked about it a few times here. We've touched on it where chivalry doesn't always look like chivalry. Sometimes it looks chivalrous when it's not. And the, Loris, you brought up Loris, and that's a great example. Like Sansa, Came out of that thinking Loras was even more noble than he was before, even though he used a trick. Because he came out looking great. He surrendered to the guy that saved his life. He looked honorable, right? He was riding really well. And then the guy saves his life. And he's like, you win. You know, like, I'm not going to, I can't challenge you. You're the winner. So it's, it looks really noble. But it's also like, you might have just lost. I mean, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Sandor might have just beaten you anyway. Like, you just took a sword to the chest. You're probably not at 100% anymore. Uh, like, it, it's gracious, 
but it's also strat- strategic, <laughs> you know? And it, it, it's like, hmm, I'm going to look really good here. Like, I'm going to look super chivalrous here. Uh, my trick's not going to work again because it's, you know, like these other, uh, like it's a win win. Yeah, it looks great. It like being, he comes out looking great, doesn't have to fight another match. Yeah, like arguably he comes out looking better than Sandor because he's, he's Loris. He's pretty and, and fancy. Yeah. And Sandor is, Sandor already has a couple strikes against him. Yeah. Loris already has a couple notches on the plus side. So, it reinforces the the what people already kind of think, you know. Now think about what Sandor said to, I guess it was to to Sansa. I'm not sure, but he said Gregor's lance goes where Gregor wants it to. He is sure, sure that the killing of Sir Hugh of the Vale was not an accident. Of course, this is part of feeding the plot to thinking it was a conspiracy that someone ordered Gregor to kill Sir Hugh. Now we, that turns out to be a red herring. Gregor saw an opportunity to kill someone and did it. That seems to be really the end of it. He saw a loose gorget, saw a little spot he could get and did it. Now, consider that. Consider how accurate these lances can be in in someone's skilled hands and think about what Leo Longthorne, the ancestor of Loras, who is mentioned a couple of times in the main series, specifically knocks the helmet off of the Grey Lion, right? And the Grey Lion's like, all right, I'm not fighting anymore because I don't have a helmet and that's dangerous as hell to be flying around with these lances that are designed to splinter, right? These lances are designed to break. Nina writes that Henry II of France died the same way, like a splinter from a lance entering his eye, right? Going into his brain. There was apparently a man in 2007 who died from in a jousting reenactment because of a lance splinter. And, a, yeah. and Nina also writes, there was a, a Hungarian knight named Gregor Bachi who sur- apparently survived for a year after taking a lance through the eye and out the back of his head. Oh my God. His name God. is Gregor, of oh. course. That's fitting that this, uh, a guy that <laughs> took a wound that should kill him and it's still alive. That seems to fit here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's, so you've got all these examples of these guys like, oh, it wasn't an accident. Like multiple cases where these guys are just very accurate with where they stick their lance. Well, that sounded euphemistic. But <laughs> uh, so when we have this example of Robin Rissling, he had lost, he's the guy that lo- had lost an eye. And he's up here, like, not giving up because he maybe understands what's happening. He understands, perhaps, that Leo Longthorne is doing this to get people to surrender to him. He's not, it's not chivalrous at all. <laughs> They're like, he's making this dangerous for them so that they have to quit. <laughs> it's like a dirty trick, man. Yeah. <laughs> like, this, we're supposed to believe this, like, amazing jouster is repeatedly accidentally knocking their helmets off like because hmm. <laughs> he knocks off <laughs> what like a coincidence three, yeah. Yeah, it happens like two or three times so <laughs> you know it, it reminds me a little bit it, it seems like it's so wild galloping on a horse against someone else galloping on a horse this long lance you're trying to aim to be able to be that precise but if you work hard enough at it i mean it seems crazy to me how accurate baseball pitchers can be and batters for that matter that they're like you know, trying to get it in, like within centimeters with a certain spin at a certain moment with a curve, all these things. It it seems just impossible, but it's actually almost scientific. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and if you if you become 
professional if you work hard and long enough it's something and and at, by the same token it kind of makes me feel like the, the powers of being in baseball should know when someone hits someone with a the ball they know what they're doing that wasn't an accident <laughs> you should get in big trouble for that more often These tournaments maybe the same thing yeah you should i feel like it should be like if someone gets their not helmet knocked off i feel like the other person should be getting disqualified you know what i mean As yeah it, Sometimes they do. You're right, but and and it's it's the the thing that happens is we we brought this up with archery before that some of the best archers in the ancient world were in their 40s. They weren't the young men. Sure, the younger guys and occasionally women have more stamina because they're younger, right? But that accuracy, that like doing something really, really, really hard, like moving and shooting a bow at a moving target, like the uh, level of practice you need to do that well is you just never stop. You never master it. You never truly master it. Like yeah. your your physical ca- capacity diminishes before you can ever truly master it, but you can become so good at it that you're a human level master. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's a bit of a tangent, but you're right. Like these, these knights, the ones who can afford it, which is a, a difference between hedge knights and some others, they're like Loris. He says it in the show. It's another one where he has a pretty good line there. He's talking to, talking to Renly, and Renly's like, you're so talented. He's like, yeah, I'm talented, but I practice every damn day. I got on that horse every day, and I rode every yeah. day, and I put that lance in my hand every day. Yes, I'm talented. Yes, I'm rich, but I practiced hard. I also worked my ass off. I didn't just get lucky. Yeah. yeah, like, I, yeah. He's a confluence of those things. He's not a, a lazy overachiever. He worked hard, definitely has a ton of privilege, but he also... Uh, didn't squander it, right? Yeah. If he hadn't been born into that privilege, but had the same drive, he might be an expert blacksmith or archer or some other thing. Or still but, maybe a great jouster, but not probably not. And Renly and other people were born into just as much privilege. They're not as good as R- Loris is. So. Right, yeah. If Renly had practiced as hard as Loris, he still might not have been as good, but he'd have been a lot better. <laughs> yeah. He probably didn't have, it's probably true that he doesn't have Loris's talent, but uh, he definitely also didn't work as hard. So, yeah, so good good points there. Let's take a few questions here in the middle and uh, then get back to the next topic. TKOK Podcast Network says, having Sean and Aziz back together these last three weeks has been sublime. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Tommy. We appreciate that. You did uh, an appearance on TKOK recently, didn't you, Sean? Yeah, we covered The Graduates. Nice. Pretty deep dive into that classic film. It was good. And Tommy was recently on History of Westeros talking about Valerian Steel, right? Yes, that's right. We've been very incestuous lately. <laughs> all, of, <laughs> all we all go on each other's shows. Yeah, that was a really fun episode. It was a little different sort of style from some of the more recent ones. Julie A says, "I wonder if Egg would have been more tortured by Arian had he stayed. Arian had already threatened to cut off his manhood. Yeah, maybe he would have. I mean, the dude's unhinged. He may have just gone through with it or done something awful. Uh, and if you're Egg." Are you going to stick around to find out? Like, is he one day just going to just go a little farther, and or that knife is going to slip? I mean, you don't want to, you don't want to find out. Yeah, and I pointed out in the chat that it was probably good for Egg's sisters that Arian was sent away. Yes, that's true. Oh man. And Dornish Dame brought up it makes them wonder if the reference to the love potion in the sworn sword was about Ray looking to marriage with Egg as a means of protection from Arian. Oh like yeah. Oh wow, oh, that's really good. That is yeah. A really good idea. Wow. I'm kind of surprised I never thought of that. Cause yeah, like Arian, yeah, we we think about how bad he was to Egg, but yeah, he probably was awful towards his sisters too. Yeah, and he probably expected he would 
have one as a wife. I mean, he brings up to Egg that he thinks he's going to marry him. Yeah, and I, I, I've been thinking of, I've been really, I guess if my head's been too deep in this comparison to Euron and Euron, like lucky for his family that he didn't have sisters. Yeah, well, um, I, it didn't really matter. Yeah, like it would have been, he probably would have done awful things to them if he had them. So good, good for them for not existing. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, wow. Hmm. That's a great point. Uh, I want to bring up a similar point. May as well talk about it now since it's, uh, it's an exercise in perception to put yourself in someone else's shoes. These stories really provide us a lot of opportunities because there's so many characters and George does a good job of at least highlighting the side characters a little more than is average for uh, books. Maybe in some cases, a lot more than average. <laughs> a lot a little more. more. <laughs> a lot more in some cases. You're right. Yeah, my head's too deep in this fandom for me to, to make that perspective. It's probably a lot more. Anyway, point being the Ash, Lord Ashford's daughter. Put yourself in her place for all this. She's excited. Think about Sansa. She's going to her first tournament, like so excited, like the pageantry, the excitement. But unlike Sansa, this one's like about her. This is like she is the center of attention. She's like Lord Ashford's like highlighting his daughter, like wants to show her off as a marriage option for these fancy houses, wants to make Valar look good. Not only does that backfire, that part backfire horribly, but is she traumatized by all this? Like, you know, Westerosi misogyny is going to be like, oh, she's cursed. Like, she's the one that, like, they held a tournament for her and Baylor died. Like, yeah, I don't know. It seems like, put yourself in her perspective and it, it's dark. It's like, man, this poor girl, you know? Yeah, it's like someone having a birthday on the same day as some a, a shooting or some tragedy or something like that. Yeah, that actually exact that exact thing happened to a coworker of mine. Uh, I was working in, in an office environment for September 11th, 9-11. And, you know, none of us went to work that day because they were just like, yeah, don't come in today. Just watch the news. And so we come into work the next day. And, and one of my coworkers, Scott's like, Yesterday was my birthday. <laughs> We're like, yeah. oh I, man. He's like, yeah, my birthday's ruined forever. I had, <laughs> I was in elementary school and we all went into to class, yeah. right? And it was a girl's birthday. And so like she had brought in cupcakes. Oh. It was like very memorable to oh, me. Oh man, yeah. Man. That's terrible. That's too bad. Like, yeah, I would just celebrate my birthday a different day. I mean, definitely it's not as bad 20 years from now. It's not the sting isn't as, as, you know, like even if you lived through it or whatever, we're there. It's, you, can, you can separate it more after time passes. I, I feel like, though, she has to be somewhat traumatized by yeah. this. Even if she didn't see the horrible gore, which she probably saw she Baylor's brain fall out. She probably definitely saw the horse screaming like a human in pain. That alone had to have been awful. Yeah, I, poor girl. Yeah, even because that's the part you can compare to Sansa. Sansa saw like Gregor's horse and all that and and the fighting of that. So she saw some of those things, but ultimately that's kind of why I pointed out Loras came out looking really good. So like in the end, yes, the tournament went pretty well for Sansa, even though there was some, it was a roller coaster. But other than that, like <laughs> Loras didn't kind of ignored her, you know, and ignored her later. Like, who are you again? And she was out. That, that didn't, that didn't make her happy. But <laughs> it's like, do I know you? <laughs> it's like, you gave me the red <laughs> special rose. Like, oh yeah, yeah. You're just some girl. I don't remember. I don't pay attention to girls. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jonathan Hagee says, Danes don't look Dornish. Aryan may see them as superior Dornish. Yeah, that's a, that's a really important point. Yeah, the Danes, they look sort of Dornish, but they, uh, they're, they're, uh, their look isn't fully established. Let's put it that way. 
they often have purple eyes. It's not established that they always have them. For example, we don't know what color eyes Arthur had. We do know that Ashara had striking purple, haunting purple eyes, which also is a reason for the the Targaryens to choose them as a marriage option. It's, it's a pretty perfect choice. It's like, oh, they're Dornish. So and we want Dornish marriages to bring the realm together, but they look like us. They look like Targaryens a lot of times. So that's a, just kind of an obvious, like, let's, this is a great things line up sort of situation. That's a good, good point with Jonathan saying maybe that because of their look, uh, so, so much of it comes down to that. He may, uh, yeah, not look down on them as much. Good call, good call. Also, like another comment from Julie, the striking size, like Brienne, right? We, we, we talked about how she turns heads wherever she goes, although a lot of them are like looking down on her. Well, metaphorically, obviously, because she's bigger than they are. And Dunk, the same thing. But with Dunk, we, we think of other characters like, like Hodor, right? Like Hodor is a big character, big guy, and maybe even, maybe even Dunk's ancestor or descendant. But we're not really ever in his head. Brienne, so we don't really have a POV that is respected for their size because in Brienne's case, it's, she, it's the reverse. Uh, it's like, uh, so this, this is a new perspective for us. Not only do we have a, a lowborn character, a hedge knight, something that we don't get in A Song of Ice and Fire, we have someone who's big who doesn't necessarily realize they're big. Right? They don't, he doesn't hmm. go around looking like, wow, look how big I am. <laughs> <laughs> it's through his eyes people react to his size. I'm like, oh, yeah. Look how people are constantly looking up at him. And that's why the Laughing Storm is a little interesting to me because that's one of the few characters that's also really big. And you can kind of get up like, oh, that guy's as big as me. Someone that doesn't look at me as a huge man, right? I have my own personal experience with this, not being seven foot tall or whatever. I'm um, indirectly by going to Thailand with our mutual friend, Chris is six foot seven. And has a large facial scar from his time in the military. So he doesn't look at all like a Thai person. <laughs> like a normal <laughs> Thai person. So walking down the crowded streets of Bangkok with him was very interesting because I would stand behind him so I could see the reactions to other, other people would be like double taking like, whoa, look at that guy. That's what their eyes would be saying. Like they'd turn, like they'd look and then they'd look away. Then they'd look back with their eyebrows raised and it's a real trip for me just watching like like dozens of people having this reaction like constantly because it's super like Bangkok is like 11 million people. It's one of the largest cities in the world. So you're walking in the, like a main street downtown where there's just so many people. This effect is magnified. It's like if you had a drone like looking down on this, you could just like measure all the head turns. The top of their heads are going to be dark colored because most Thai people have like a dark color hair. But as their heads turn to look up, you would then see the light of their faces and their eyes instead. And it's just like this pattern of all these faces turning at the same moment as this large object passes between them. So I think it's... I remember like one that. time I was walking, this is long ago enough that but when Rudy was still, you know, I mean, he's still tall, but he's lost a lot of weight. But when he was still big and with Chris Honan, I was walking with the two of them and we were coming up toward like a, a reflective, you know, a building where we could see our reflection. I was like, geez, my friends are... My friend's Hulk. Rudy <laughs> <laughs> and Chris are both just a um, little old me, and they're like towering above me. Like, holy, it's a very striking image to see our reflection. Yeah. I also can relate just to big people when Dunk is described, for example, because my brother is six foot eight. 
Yeah. And so I was, oh, I was yeah. like a little egg, and he could just toss me all around. I just have a very uh, clear image of that disparity. But he's a lot older than you, too, right? Yeah, he's eleven years older than so. me. So it would be basically exactly like uh, egg and dunk because du- yeah, egg yeah. is more like six, seven years old, younger than dunk. So when he was twenty-one, he would have been fully grown, and you would have been like ten, and you yes. would have still been like. Four feet at most. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. Dun- uh, Duncan Ash. <laughs> it was. It was. It was actually Ash and Ash. Yeah, Ash and Ash. Ashton and Ashay. Yep. That's pretty cool. So, thanks for the questions, y'all. Let's get back to it. But real quick, I want to make a couple mentions. I want to shout out our our friends over at Shire Post Mint. They're doing great work over there. They've been sort of a partner of ours for a long time. We're also friends of ours. We always go say hey to them whenever we're at a convention and they have a booth. They're, they basically started as a mom and pop shop down in a basement just making coins for Lord of the Rings. Shire, right? Shire Post. Shire Post Malone. Uh, no, not Shire Post Malone. <laughs> they have since expanded to do... Obviously, they've done Song of Ice and Fire. We have I have a sack of Shire Post mint coins over there. All sorts of cool stuff. But they've done... Conan, they've done King Killer Chronicles, they've done just a lot of different coins from a lot of fandoms. Now they've really expanded, plus just like fun coins, Roman replica coins, just lots of cool stuff. And you can get a 10% discount on any purchase there. Go to historyofwesteros.com, click on the Shire Post Mint, and start shopping. Also, I want to shout out our Discord channels for a specific reason. We're doing an Expanse reread over there. Just a few of us are just talking about the Expanse and we've just started. We've just started the short stories. Only the first three short stories have been scheduled uh, or have been reached on the schedule. We're about to start the first book. So if you want to get involved, it's definitely not too late as of uh, it's July 11th as of this recording. So uh, by the time you hear this, we probably haven't gone that much farther. Really fun. Expanse is great. There's a lot of Expanse connections to a Song of Ice and Fire. Well, really on the, the meta level, George R. R. Martin is connected to those authors um, in a number of ways. So that's cool. Also, it's just a fantastic story and world. So there's that. So if you want to get involved, head over to our Discord and uh, hit the Expanse reread channel. We've talked a little bit about dubbing. This aspect of it is uh, another subtopic under that umbrella. The Plumber, the steward says, any night can make a night. It's more customary to stand a vigil and be anointed by a septum before taking your vows. Now, he says more customary. Obviously, he doesn't say it's a rule, and that's important. There's a lot of work done by it not being a requirement. But it's also kind of ironic because, as Nina points out, Raymond Fossaway doesn't have any vigil or <laughs> any septum or anything. It's a lot. You know what it reminds me of, Sean, is like, like a battlefield promotion. Like, Obviously, in the real world military, most promotions are done with some signed paperwork and some back and forth, a little bit of time, approvals and stuff like that. But sometimes the officers are all dead in the real war situation. And someone has to be like, sometimes it's temporary promotion, but sometimes a lot of times it sticks, right? Am I, is that pretty accurate? Am I I off there? It's very regimented, the process to for getting promoted, uh, there's there's a certain minimum time and grade, and then you have to take certain classes. You have to get a recommendation from your officer, and at, at certain levels, you have to you know stand in front of a board. At, at higher rank, like generals, have to be approved by Congress. But on the battlefield, yeah, a lot of times when sometimes tragically, a lot of people can get killed all at once, and someone's 
got to be in charge, you know? And also not to mention, usually there's sort of a chain of command in addition to like the ranks, like ostensibly any captain can tell any lieutenant or any sergeant what to do. But usually you would only tell someone in your own unit what to do. You know, a captain telling a private from some other unit, technically they're allowed to, but it's, they might even get in trouble for it, you know? Mm. But on the battlefield, people might just get thrust together. They're on a plane, they jump in, they're scattered, someone dies. All right, we need someone to be in charge of this squad taking that hill. Private, you're the sergeant in command now. Mm. Go do it. Usually after the battle, they're way more likely to get promoted to sergeant. Usually it's temporary till afterwards, but once you've actually been in battle acting as a sergeant, you're probably going to get that promotion, you know? Yeah. Now, of course, caveat, what Sean's describing is the U.S. military. Now, Sean was a soldier, so he knows a lot of this pretty well. But obviously, there's other militaries throughout history and currently that would not have all the same rules. Some of them would be pretty similar, but there's also examples in world of, say, Lord Commanders of the Kingsguard becoming Lord Commander in the battle. Like, Lord Commander dies, new guy is named Lord Commander. There's one Lord Commander who was only Lord Commander for like an hour. He got a battlefield promotion, died within that hour, and, well, makes for a good story. Uh, so, it's really important. We, we see that there's a lot of, amidst this pastiche of, of class and honor amongst the concept of knighthood, the night that dubs you. It is important. It's not just this standing vigil and whether a septon does the oils and whether you say the right words. More importantly, probably, is because this is remembered going forward a lot more than where you stood your vigil and that stuff gets forgotten. No one's going to even know. But if you, but who dubbed you? That is a little more likely to be remembered. That's more likely to stick around and more likely to be important, more likely to be brought up at parties, you know. So this is a quote the question is, and why did Lord Frey ask Rob to see about Oliver's knighting when he had more than enough anointed knights at his disposal to attend to the matter? So, why should someone go to Harvard when they can get a degree from their local community college? There's great prestige in receiving your knighthood from a king, a prince, one of the king's guard, or other celebrated legendary knights. Getting knighted by a brother is like kissing your sister. We'll leave Jamie Lannister and the Targaryens out of that comparison. <laughs> And getting dubbed by the local hedge knight is like graduating from barber college. You get a sheepskin maybe, but don't try applying to law school. Yeah, and of course, George isn't denigrating those institutions. He's just pointing out how society tends to look at them. Yeah, a lot of times later in your life and later in your career, that matters less. Yes. Right? Like maybe you just went to your local community college, but after you've been in your career for 14 years and you've got success and built a business or won your cases or whatever it is, it, it starts to matter a little bit less. Probably the same for a knight, right? Yeah. Like, in fact, Dunk, of uh, questionable whether or not he was even dubbed a knight by Arlen, yeah. who is a knight that hardly anyone even knows. But eventually, he's the Lord Commander, right? So eventually, your actions of your life can overcome your start point. But your start point can certainly give you a, a, a jump start. And Dunk is an exception to the rules. So. Yeah, and <laughs> you wonder if, like, Raymond was like, I mean, he can't be that unhappy because the Laughing Storm knighted him and that guy, you know, is pretty famous. Although he did have a rebellion, he did come back and surrender and it all worked out. So, for the most part. So, yeah, that's pretty good. Like, getting knighted by the Laughing Storm, that worked out. The Lord of, the eventual Lord of Storm's End. But, had he been knighted by Sir Duncan, the tall, famous knight of the King's Guard, <laughs> oh man, it's like, Dunk was like, no, you don't want to be knighted by me. And he's like, actually... <laughs> In retro, you know, another uh, example to that point is uh, Barristan thinks about knighting his squires. Yeah, but he's but he knows he's about to lead a coup. He's like, ah, eh, 
maybe let's make sure this works out first because I might be dooming them. You know, that being knighted by me, if I get executed after starting a coup, might get them executed. But if the coup is successful, then maybe I'll do it and it'll be more honorable. Yeah, now that he's apparently led this very successful sortie with his leading his troops out, now being knighted by him definitely gains some... Uh, prestige, yeah. of course, if, you know, we have to wait to see how he's actually received, you know, but... Yeah, do we good. think we'll potentially see a battlefield knighting? Ooh. Ooh I mean, yeah, if we're cool. if we're concerned about Barristan's survival... Mm-hmm. Ah, good point. Good question. I really like bringing this Barristan example into this. This is really getting me to think. Well, we'll have to keep that one on the shelf. Um, if we have some ideas, we'll, we'll throw them out. Y'all in the chat, do the same. Please give us your thoughts. Uh, Martin has thousands of pages coming in a story. That's enough for one of these young <laughs> troops to to take over Barristan, you know, for Barristan to die in battle, but someone he knighted become a more central character, loyal to Danny or whatever. Yeah, and that, and, um, that would be, in some ways, that would be really interestingly fitting because you'd have knights, which is a Westerosi distinction, but they would be like Tumco Lowe, who's from the Basilisk Isles. You know? Yeah, and I mean, that would help with something we've just been dying for. We complain about it all the time, which is just we want more time with these SOC. I mean, we talk about the, the Dothraki, obviously, most particularly, but just period. I would love to see the Red Lamb. Yeah. yeah. It's neat, too. Nina writes this uh, parallel between Dunk and Egg and Raymond Fossaway. They're boys from very different backgrounds, but they all want to be knights. Throw Bran in the mix if you want to bring the first character we're introduced to in A Song of Ice and Fire. Like, that's just, he starts off like one of the actual first lines in his entire arc is thinking about the Kingsguard, like how he wants to be in the Kingsguard. I mean, it's not in his first, I think it's in his second chapter. And then his third chapter is his fall. So, uh, or no, he falls at the end of the second chapter. That's right. It's the end of that one. <laughs> it's, it's a very much a recurring theme. Boys wanted to be knights. I mean, uh, I don't know about you, but for a while, when I was a kid, I wanted to be, I don't know, a cowboy. Um, it's kind of the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> My dad, when he was a kid, he wanted, to, it, uh, times are a little bit different now, but when he was a kid, he wanted to be one of two things, a garbage man or a fireman, because they got to ride on the outside of the truck. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> So, yeah, so they each have these other, like, they have these ways of getting to it. And, like, Egg is with Daron, you know, his drunk older brother. And he's like, well, how am I ever going to become a knight through this method, right? Like, how am I ever going to get there through this? And meanwhile, Raymond Fossaway, kind of the same. Like, his, his, his cousin's kind of holding it over him. He's like, yeah, you're not ready. Like, he, he wasn't being very good about it. So Raymond, by breaking free, all three of these guys broke free of their main influence and it worked out for them. Now, in in Dunk's case, Sir Arlen wasn't like bad to him. But still, to become a knight, he had to, you know, it it was kicked off by Sir Arlen's death, whereas Egg's journey is kicked off by leaving Garon and Raymond's journey is really kicked off by finally getting away from Stefan. That was a nice little... uh, triangulation, three characters. The knight must have three swords, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about the apples. Let's talk about Fossaway. This is a good uh, lead-in to their family. The, the last time we had queer foreign fruits, this time we have straight native fruits. Uh, they are definitely one of the houses that, when you add up their appearances, are pretty prominent. The Fossaways first appear in A Clash of Kings. So this is yet another example on the meta level of like, 
George wrote this story alongside Clash of Kings and you know, these world-building details sort of came out at the same time. They're one of the, say, 15-ish houses. There's not an exact number on that, but it's in the mid-teens that claim direct descent from Garth Greenhand. Their, their claim is accepted. There's some other claims out there that are, as to use Olena's term, a bit dodgy. But it's really hard to dispute theirs because there's a famous figure named Foss the Archer who was one of Garth Greenhand's sons. And so they're Foss away. Like, you know, like the name, it's right there, right? It's in the name. There's a notable Lord Owen Fossaway during the Dance of the Dragons, who was one of the Caltrops, so we might see him on TV. Uh, Sir John Fossaway is of the Green Apple Fossaways, so he's an ancestor, or God, I keep doing that, a descendant of, of uh, the cadet branch we see formed here in this very novella. The Green Apple Fossaways, of course, didn't exist prior to this novella. And Fossaway, John Fossaway, shows up at Storm's End in Catelyn and Davos's chapters in A Clash of Kings. Um, and then Sir Garland Tyrell, Garland the Gallant, is married to Leonette Fossaway. And you've met her. We've all met her. She sat next to Tyrion and Sans at the Purple Wedding. She's the one that had that sort of quip of, about when Tyrion finished that line. He's like, and cut off poor Tyrion's nose. She's the one who's like, you're a better singer than this galleon of Kai. <laughs> you know, they were both like very uh, conspicuously nice to Tyrion, which... So nice that it's like, hmm. But returning to a question that is bearing a lot of fruit. Huh? Thanks again, Javi Marcos, for your question about where Blackfire references might have appeared had they been fully developed by the time the story was written. And I have to think this is a huge bullseye. A bullseye, a William Tell bullseye with an apple uh, on you know, someone's head. Because how great a fit would it be to talk about a cadet branch of House Targaryen amidst the formation of a cadet branch of this Apple family? You have the Red Dragon cadet branch turning into the Black Dragon. You have the Red Apple turning into the Green. Whereas, of course, in the Dance of the Dragons, it was the Green versus the Black. So you've got Red, Green, Black. It's the three main colors of apples and dragons. <laughs> and brown, frankly. Rather, Franklin, not Frank Lee. Franklin Flowers, quotes. The prince acknowledging with a nod. Flowers is a bastard name. We're from the Reach. I, my mother, was a washerwoman at Cider, till, at Cider Hall till one of my lord's sons raped her. Makes me sort of brown apple fast away the way I see it. So this is a great thread to follow. Franklin is part of the Golden Company, which is, of course, a product of the Blackfire Rebellions via Bittersteel. So... How about that? This is a deep levels connections of both themes and direct plotting here. Not just like behind the scenes connecting dots, but this is a pretty direct through line to the Golden Company appearing into the story as, you know, championing a guy who may be a low-key Blackfire. And Nina also writes, it's a wonderful bit of irony here. Stefan abandons Dunk to back Arian because Arian promises to make him a lord, but Raymond is going to found a new house <laughs> and get his own, get uh, lands as well. The, the Cider Hall is the seat of the Red Apple Fossilways, but now there's this new barrel. George really leans into these uh, <laughs> his names, <laughs> New Barrel. Uh, so Raymond Fossilways, probably the first knight of New Barrel. And best guess, these lands are 
established after the Black Fire, the third Black Fire Rebellion, which would be the next time there's actual fighting because the second Black Fire Rebellion is, is barely a war. Great guess. I agree with this guess that these, the lands of New Barrel were established after the third Black Fire Rebellion when you would have a time that rebellious lords would have lands taken away from them and those who stayed loyal would have these lands given to them. We see this right after the Battle of the Blackwater, right? So, uh, and I think maybe we're being set up to see that again. Franklin Flowers, Fossilway bastard, Brown Apple Fossilway, as he says it. What are the odds that that's the land he wants? Not, not New Barrel, but Cider Hall, because that's probably a fancier spot. And uh, that's, you know, where he was from. His, his mother was a washerwoman at Cider Hall, not at New Barrel. So that's who he would want. That's who he has descent from. That's who he would want revenge against. So if we see young Griff grant this title to Franklin Flowers because he's a captain in the Golden Company, well, or sergeant in the Golden Company, I guess he is a captain. Anyway, you have already had the groundwork laid out for you. So you will know why it's a momentous land giveaway and not just another random person getting some land. There you go. And that would make him perhaps similar to his distant ancestor, Sir Derek Fossaway, who was an exile knight infamous enough to have been one of the Band of Nine, a.k.a. the Nine Penny Kings. He probably wanted Cider Hall too, among other things. For more on him, check out our episodes on the Nine Penny Kings. There's two of them. And this Derek and Franklin, as members of the Fossaway family, they remind us of what happens when claimants lurk across the sea, just like it was with the Black Fires. Speaking of, let's not forget the promise of sorts that Franklin Flowers makes in A Dance with Dragons. Rivers was smiling in approval. Others traded thoughtful looks. Then Peek said, I would sooner die in Westeros than on a demon road. And Mark Mandrake chuckled and responded, Me? I'd sooner live. Win lands at some great, cas- some great castle. And Franklin Flowers slapped his sword hill and said, So long as I can kill some fossilways, I'm for it. It's much more believable than this promise made back in A Clash of Kings Catlin 2 by another fossilway. Sir Mark Mullendore brought a black and white monkey and fed him morsels from his own plate. While Sir Tanton of the Rat Apple Fossilways climbed on the table and swore to slay Sandor Clegane in single combat. The vow might have been taken more solemnly if Sir Tanton had not had one foot in a gravy boat when he made it. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, shout out to our good friend San Rixian, who drew the best ever fan drawing of a fantasy monkey of all time. She drew Mullendore's <laughs> monkey with armor because he did have a little suit of chainmail, according to the text. Sir Tanton, gravy boat man, did survive the Battle of the Blackwater. No word of whether it was because he kept the gravy boat on. Uh, <laughs> gravy boats are better than other boats when wildfire is flying around because all those other boats were burned. And, well, the gravy boat probably did fine. Really, though, the man the Fossaways should want to kill isn't uh, Sandor Clegane. It should be Lothor Brune. Why Lothor Brune? And, well, He's not exactly easy to get at right now. Lothor Brune is in the veil with Sansa and Elaine. Well, both of them. <laughs> Sansa and Elaine. <laughs> He's one of Littlefinger's top men. During the Battle of the Blackwater, Sir Lothor Brune killed Sir Brian Fossaway and Sir Edwin Fossaway and then captured the aforementioned Sir John Fossaway. He didn't bother with Gravy Boat Guy. 
<laughs> Probably because, like, who needs... To, you don't need to worry about that guy. But he was given the nickname Lothor Apple Eater. Like, these families with their proud heritages, you have a guy walking around named Lothor Apple Eater who got that name because he killed multiple fossilways. <laughs> that should be your arch nemesis. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like, seriously. Uh, your apple nemesis. Which is a segue to... Uh, to the format of this tournament, the challenging, right? They, you set up, you get to challenge whoever you want. And it's really interesting the way that fits into the, the style of corruption that they, that's being run around here, right? We've got this example of, well, you have to pick who you want to pick. Uh, do you dare challenge this guy? Do you dare have the social, do you have the social currency to challenge someone this far ahead of you when it's just a bracket system when the randomness determines it it's not you're not jumping up socially by challenging someone the challenge happens for you you're not making a decision but here it's almost like they know that like this is going to keep even arian doesn't challenge valar right like of all the even he isn't doing it but who does he challenge he challenges the lowest born champion Harold Harding, who distinguished himself, like that guy was kicking butt, right? But he was the, clearly the lowest born of the champions. Like, obviously, Dunk isn't a champion. Dunk is lower born, but he wasn't a champion at that moment. I mean, that's a big deal, right? Like, he's, he's showing, teaching this upstart a lesson. It's like, you beat all these people, you're low born. I'm going to embarrass you. But of course, it backfires because Arian's concept of, <laughs> of what's embarrassing and what isn't is is pretty off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he ends up embarrassing himself. Dunk does think at one point that Harding, if he had to choose, would be the true winner of the, the tourney because he, had, I think, won 14 yeah. joust more than anyone else, which is crazy. Yeah, he was the most impressive. Yeah. But that you could see all the more reason why Arian would want to like put a stop to it, you know, like... Uh, yeah, and why? And no one's, and the very people stood up to that. They're like, yeah, it's so obvious that Arian has done a bad thing here, but like almost no one was willing to back yeah. him up. Are there new true knights along among you? Well, when we speak of how beautifully George has managed to tie Dung's story to his likely ancestor, Brienne, this biggest examples is coming along here. One of the very few things we, very first things we learned about Brienne, uh, apart from her physical, physical prowess, like her size, just the obvious details that you see from the outside is her naive view of knighthood and chivalry. A big part of her arc is, is that falling off, like her learning the truth of what, of what real knights are like, but sticking to it anyway. It's beautiful, right? She stays, like, she's like, oh, wow, very few knights actually uphold these knightly ideals. All the more important that I do so then. She's not like, oh, well, then yeah. rather than just going with the crowd, she's like, oh, that makes it even more important that I do it. And Dunk is of the same attitude with just a couple of buddies. That's, I, that's really beautiful to me that this is uh, a central theme of this. And it really spins the name Brienne the Beauty on its, its, on its meaning. Like they're mocking her, but she has a, she really is beautiful in this sense in her attitude. And uh, very few knights have this attitude that she has. And it's, you know, it's really standout. So Dunk is learning that too. It's, it's different because he's learning it not quite as much out in the world in war. Not by, you know, losing half of his face and these other awful things that happened to Brienne. But he's confronted by a bunch of examples of knights not acting like knights at all. Like, blatantly. There's cheating. There's favoritism. There's exclusion. And there's a few bright spots. 
But of course, he dies at the end. <laughs> the <biggest laughs> bright spot. So these twin concepts, like I, we talked about Leo Tyrell's trick and Loris Tyrell's trick. That's another example of, of privilege and wealth. It's insider knowledge, right? Loris knew this trick about horsemanship, about a stallion in heat, because he's been around horses and wealth his whole life. Like, you, you're not a, you can't be around horses without having money unless you're like a stable boy or something like that. You're either employed with horses or you're rich and own horses. There's not a lot of in-between there, even in this world. I mean, in our world, it's even more true. Of course, horse knowledge isn't nearly as valuable in our world. But So I think that uh, touches back on what we were saying about Loris and, and Gregor and all that. It's like that trick would Dunk have even conceived? I'm not saying he would have used it even if he thought of it, but it's not, it wouldn't have even occurred to him. Like, but yeah. a long, the Tyrells have been jousting for centuries. Like, this is something that they just know. It's another thing that Loris might have an extra awareness of, as we pointed out, how much he practices. He probably at one point rode a mare that was in heat and realized, oh, I can't do this. Right? I got to be careful about which horse I'm picking in the first place, you know? Yeah. Part trick, know. but still some value of his experience, yeah. you know? And it's like the people who are watching who knew horses, like they got, they understood Loris's trick, but it's not out in the open. It's not like, oh, Loris was cheating because it was subtle enough that most people don't even notice, right? It, the reason it even got noticed was because Gregor cut his horse's head off. That kind of <laughs> made Sansa like go, what the hell? And then someone explains it to her. But if Gregor just like grumbles and marches off, it might not even get brought up that Loris was cheating. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and here it's even more subtle. It's not obvious that they're throwing it for Valar, right? It's it's not obvious at all, but it is there. Like once you're once you're clued into it, it becomes obvious once you're once the concept is raised, I think. Like George R. R. Martin here, he says one of his quotes is it's pretty plain in the hedge night if you read between the lines that everyone was bending over backwards to make Valar look good. <laughs> you know, and he doesn't say cheating. Well, a quote. He had won nine victories. But it seemed to Dunk that everyone was hollow. He's beating old men and updrunk squires, and a few lords of high birth and low skill. The truly dangerous men are riding past the shield as if they do not see it. That line right there, the truly dangerous men are riding past the shield as if they do not see it. That's the one that I think is the biggest clue of all. Yeah, a George loves irony, so it's it's funny how this all works out. We talked about how backwards it all goes. Like <laughs> nothing like wanting to show off for the Targaryens only for the prince to die. Uh, <laughs> bitter steel though over the cross and air he's like yeah all right good tournament good <laughs> <laughs> and it's interesting too the difference between balor ba balor is nothing isn't like valor like you wonder what's in Val valar's head does valar realize that everyone's throwing it for him does he get it does he does he is he clued into this like we don't know much about valar whether he's a smart kid or the only moment we really get with him is he's like man don't get away from me you're the reason my father's dead which i get it like he's He's bitter. It doesn't mean he's a bad guy. I, yeah. I, I don't hold that against him. He's dealing with greed. Like, it, three weeks later, he might have been kinder to Dunk. Two, two days prior, he might have been kinder to Dunk. It's hard to know. Yeah. And uh, I, I also wondered if maybe Valar even, uh, maybe he does know it and he's frustrated by it. You know, maybe he wants a real challenge. Ah, it's all the old, the, the crappy nights, you know? Like, yeah. He, get, he understands he's being coddled, maybe. Um, but that, and that's yeah. the question. I wonder if he realizes that. It, it, it would be... It's hard because from in, in, in some ways, it's really obvious. But in some ways, like when you're the recipient of it, you know, when you're in the middle, when you're raised, like it's, he's not that old, you know, he's kind of, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't assume he knows. So. Yeah. It's also, if I remember right, just the first day, maybe he thinks, well, tomorrow, tomorrow someone will challenge me, you know, but. Yeah. 
I, I maybe I want to paint him in a brighter light since he's Baylor's son, but yeah. uh, but maybe maybe he asked to make sure it happened that way. You yeah. know, it could be the other end of the spectrum. You never know. You know, like Baylor might have put his thumb on the scale just a little bit because it's a few, a little like one sentence from him says a lot, right? Because of who he is. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Can I just bring up real quick how fitting it is that the Targaryen that this is happening to is Valar Targaryen, which is the exact opposite <laughs> of Valor. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, and it just, it just once again reinforces the classism in place here. Valar is getting all these like advantages. They're like helping him win. Yet when someone like Harold Harding comes in and just does really well on merit alone... Arian kills his horse against. and breaks his leg. Yeah. It's so awful. It's yeah. like this is this sort of stuff happens in regular society Humphrey, all the time. We just don't way. see it. I'm sorry. You said Harold. It's Humphrey. Oh, Humphrey. I'm sorry. Yeah, of course. The two Humphreys. Harold is, of course, the current character that Sansa's gonna marry. Harry the heir. Getting Harry the heir confused with I mean Humphrey the dead. Yeah, and this happens again in the, in the mystery now. We'll be coming back to this. It's like the knights who lose on purpose are rewarded. The knights who refuse to lose on purpose get a lance in the face and false charges of Grand Theft Dragon Egg, right? <laughs> <laughs> and the lance in the face comes up from a professional tourney knight who cheats regularly and talks about how common it is, right? Like, it's just, yeah. oh, man. So the dirty underbelly to tournament ni- tournaments nights and tournaments in general is like such a contrast to what Sansa sees from our first tournament we ever get <laughs> in these books. So, yeah. Let's, we have saved up some sort of funny moments. Uh, here's one that I think is kind of funny, but also just under the radar, kind of uh, a little referral tongue-in-cheek, shall we say, or maybe something else in cheek. Here's a quote. Lord Karen, harper and singer and knight of renown, touched the point of his lance to Lord Tyrell's rose. So there's some Leona Rhaegar vibes there, you know, harper, a guy who's both a harper and a singer, and a rose, right? The blue rose, it's a gold rose instead of a blue rose. But I, mostly that line is just really gay. <laughs> Especially if you <laughs> consider the next line in the same context. Sir Jothus, Sir, I can't say it, Sir Joth, Joseph, thumped on Sir Humphrey Harding's diamonds. Hmm. I <laughs> think I'm exaggerating. Well, the next line is, well, uh, shortly, I don't the next line, but sh- shortly after we have the harp lord and the rose lord were going at each other lustily with blunted long axes to the delight of the <laughs> roaring crowd. So uh, Dunk certainly doesn't notice what's between the lines there, <laughs> and he's not going <laughs> to notice it when Sir John the Fiddler flirts with him and says, I'd like to try my lance on you. So Really, this is a regular feature of the Duncan Egg novellas is people, you know, a little bit of... Uh, mostly it's directed at Dunk because he's apparently pretty hot. I mean, he's a huge man, so that, that, that tracks. So that's pretty funny. It's also like a connection to Brienne. Again, Brienne not prob- maybe getting that Renly was into men or just not, not mattering to her. But she also, you know, Renly had a favorite Tyrell Rose also who involved some Lance Point touching. Hmm. <laughs> uh, staying on the uh, subject of non-cis relationships, we have uh, horses won't charge a spear wall. Okay, wait, where are you going with this, Aziz? <laughs> what? <laughs> well, Shay and I had a, noticed something on video the other day that was, that was very amusing. Yeah, uh, there is a video of you know how streets, they'll do the crosswalks, they'll, you know, paint them rainbow for Pride Month or whatever. Or, or just in general. Yeah, or just yeah. in general, sure. 
So anyways, it was some horses with the, some of those cops, the police horses, um, walking down the road and they, they they come across one of those rainbow crosswalks and they just would not cross it. They were, lo- they looked so <laughs> oh. freaked out. They were like, they were like going like, around, yeah. like, yeah. like sidling around, getting on the sidewalk, just doing everything they could to avoid it. And I don't think it's that they aren't comfortable around rainbows. <laughs> I believe it's that uh, they horses, yeah, yes, homophobic <laughs> horses. No, I don't think it's that. I think it was just really unusual to them. They they aren't used to that sort of thing on the ground, and the horses got spooked by it. And then the other horses kind of followed suit with the first horse. Yeah, it's really neat. They're just like really afraid of this rainbow crosswalk. But I, I think it's color because horses don't see the same colors as we do, and it might look black. Like we one time put our cat's food dish on this red mat and he didn't he freaked out he was like what the hell is this because i think it looked like a black hole to him because cats don't see red that well because <laughs> he was like he was like touching with the tip of his paw like what is that like oh my god so yeah it was probably something like this where it just looked like a pit <laughs> right like yeah. like oh my god so yeah horses don't charge a spear wall and this is this is historically interesting horses like a trick in ancient warfare was to open a gap in the infantry lines not just so you could have like a physical space to charge through and and disrupt their cohesion, but physically the horses wouldn't charge unless that was there. They needed to see that or they just wouldn't do it because, you know, horses aren't most intelligent animals, but they're not suicidal. They're not like, hey, like they're not completely blind to the danger of running into what looks like a wall of people. They may not realize the spears are dangerous, but it's still like, Animals don't run into walls like, at high <laughs> <Yeah>. speeds <laughs> like on the regular. So there's just some basic common sense here. <laughs> you know, that reminds me of uh, the, the, the horses and the rainbows and such. It reminds me of a video I saw. I think it was an Ozzyman reviews, oh, you know, uh, how you like. Yes. And it's, it's two horses coming down a trail and there's a little bunny rabbit on the trail. And it just freeze. They like step forward and step back, and like the humans <laughs> trying to coax them, and they're like, <laughs> and Elzman's like doing the horses' thoughts about like, you go first. I'm not doing it. That thing could get us. Have you seen? That? It was hilarious. I, I think I've seen that one. He also does one where there's that one where the geese, the geese and the cows, and there's or one goose, and there's all these cows that are like charging the goose. And the goose does not back down. Like a, a cow oh. comes full speed at the goose and it doesn't flinch at all. Like it doesn't even take one step back. And the, and the cow stops. The cow's like, it, it breaks its charge because it's like, it's so <laughs> thrown by the goose's insane courage. <laughs> <laughs> it, was a, it might be a stone goose and the cow doesn't want to hurt itself. <laughs> it's like trampling over. <laughs> Which brings us back to the point. Animals don't charge stationary objects <laughs> very often. <laughs> unless you make them really mad. Real quick as well, Nina did us the favor of of doing a rundown of what happens to the challengers and the champions. It's not, it's mostly not good. Humphrey Harding, of course, dies by the end of the tournament. He's killed during the trial of seven. Medgar Tully dies within two years. The attorney, we don't know why, he's succeeded by an eight-year-old and that becomes, uh, you know, that's brought up during the mystery night. Damon Lancer, the gray lion, dies of the spring sickness next year. Tybolt Lannister, who we see uh, as a challenger, dies under suspicious circumstances in 212 AC, and Sorel becomes Lady of Cashley Rock, but she dies uh, less than a year later as well, which also perhaps suspicious. Valar uh, dies of the Great Spring Sickness as well, so he doesn't even last a full year after this. 
Leo Tyrell, Leo Longthorn, no idea, but uh, he's already considered older here, and he's said to be ailing by 212, so yeah, he probably just isn't, doesn't last much longer. Lionel lasts for a while. He lives at least till the 240s, so he's around for quite a while. Uh, he does have a rebellion. It's his daughter that was supposed to marry Duncan, the Prince of Dragonflies, who, because he goes and marries Jenny uh, of Old Stones instead, you know, Jenny's song. So that re- results in a rebellion and a trial by combat. Uh, this one you might not know about, Sean. Did you know that, 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 that much later that Lionel Baratheon will fight a trial by combat against Duncan the Tall? No, really? Yeah. There's a really famous piece of artwork in the world of Ice and Fire. It's huge, full page of the two of them in their full armor. The Laughing Storm with his big antlers and, and his big, I guess it's a big hammer. Does he have a hammer or an axe or something? And then Dunk and his full Kingsguard. You'll have to read the world of Ice and Fire to see how that goes. It is cool. Yeah, yeah it's very cool. And it has an interesting resolution. I'll uh, leave it there. We'll leave it unresolved for you so you can experience it the way it was intended or close to it. <laughs> Now, the Ashford t- brothers, this probably wasn't very good for any of them. This, the family probably took a hit prestige-wise after this happened under their watch, even though it really wasn't their fault. Uh, and, of course, the Hightowers, we talk about how they're about to have a big old plague. Uh, not about to. It's, you know, maybe a decade or two, but that's obviously going to definitely, Abelar will be gone by then. The accident. The quote-unquote accident. Not an accident at all, of course. We, we saw what happens. There's uh, Dunk because he's still has the wool over his eyes about chivalry and naivete about knighthood, offers the possibility that it was an accident. But Egg is like, without saying he knows that guy, he's like, I know that guy. That wasn't an accident. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no one, there's really no argument there. It was definitely on purpose. Especially after we just talked earlier about how the, the knights can be very adept at what they're, adept at what they're doing. And it, this wasn't even like the, you know, six inches difference between like the the helm and the shield. This was like the two foot difference between the neck of the horse yeah. and the shield. So, by the way, another reason to ch- another piece of art to check out shared in our Facebook group by Shea was Arian Brightflame's like tournament regalia, his armor and his like flaming cape, and it looks awesome. Like you would be, I mean, that it's hard to imagine a more intimidating set of armor. Now, of course, these knights are not going to be intimidated by just, you know, the shape of someone's armor. But the idea might be the reason Arian and one chose to fight the lowest born guy there would be perhaps to get him to go easy on him. Maybe he thinks that they won't try as hard against him because he's a prince. And this guy's so low born, he might think class protects him a little bit. Of course, he doesn't even let it get that far. He just spears the guy's horse right away before (laughs) anything else could even happen. Yeah. Interestingly, of all the people to have uh, their horse killed under them during the hands tournament early in A Game of Thrones is Beric Dondarrion's horse was killed by a hedge knight in a checkered cloak. A checkered cloak. That a checkered cloak. A checkered cloak. That's Her- uh, Humphrey Harding has checkered, has red and white diamond. He's got a checkered cloak. So, of course, this is uh, not the, obviously not the same guy or even the same family, but it might be George having a little fun with uh, a reversal there. Because it's a low, the lowborn knight kills the highborn instead of the other way around. <laughs> uh, and of course, very famously, Willis Tyrell fought Oberyn Martell in a tournament, and that's what cost him his leg. Now, 
That, of course, according to Oberyn, wasn't really his fault. And Oberyn makes a decent case that Willis wasn't ready to be fighting in such company. But there's still an element of chivalry to that, right? Like, well, Barristan the Bold shouldn't have been fighting in that tournament either, but that doesn't mean you have to, like, treat him like he's not a boy. Like, oh, he's a competitor in the tournament. I'm not going to go light on him, yeah. even though he's 10. <laughs> so <laughs> clearly, Duncan, the Prince of Dragonflies, has a different attitude than Oberyn Martell, but uh, we knew that already. <laughs> this moment, Sean, how did this moment hit, strike you? When you're reading the story the first time, I think we're all dunk when... You know, he didn't believe she was really going to snap her finger, even though, like, there's no reason not to believe it because of who he is. Like, ah, it's so visceral. It's like, you get the yeah. horse being speared, and that's, like, way bloodier and gorier, and it's probably a lot louder, but this is, like, this is so human and, gr- like, ah, finger. I, I'm, I'm always a little, like, a little weaker need when it comes to hand injuries because my mother's a musician, and she's real cautious with her fingers, and that, that, that was imparted to me by osmosis. <laughs> so I don't know, maybe that's just a little bit of me, but I, this is something that this is so just, man, it just brings back memories of like childhood bullies and just people picking on people they can't help. Just like, ah, uh, you hate it so much. It really, it's really well done, really like in, far, in terms of writing. Yeah, even the second time reading it, when I, I kind of knew it was coming, I was like, oh, oh, like I had to put the book down for just a second. It's exactly, it's really hard to, Sometimes like on TV or movies or I guess in books or whatever, when 14 people are gutted by chainsaws and <laughs> blood splattered on the wall, you know, some hyper-violent something out of the boys or Quentin Tarantino movie. It's not as bad as when someone gets their finger broke. Something a little more simple and realistic, more relatable. It's like, how? Oh, oh, geez. And another thing I can't help but think, oh, Casanova sighting. Another thing I can't help but think about too is the implications, not just like the pain of that moment, but she's a puppeteer. How's she going to do her job anymore with a broken finger? You know, it's... Uh, uh, and not just it, that, it, they destroyed all her puppets, like everything. They burned exactly, all of Exactly, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really bad. It's very much it's like, like... ruining someone's life. It's, it's a real parallel to what Dunk is worried about. Like, Dunk is worried that if he doesn't win his first match, he loses his armor, his horse, his livelihood. It's the same thing. She just lost that. Now, we come to find out she has an uncle that made the puppets so she could she probably has, you know, a way to get going again. But still, Arian doesn't know that. He doesn't think of that at all. He's just just pure authoritarian, pure cruelty. Just yeah, their image. He doesn't care. Yeah, you know. like uh, the punishment fitting a crime is a key part of modern justice. You know. Yes. And this does not. Yeah, it's like we like we assuming it was even a crime she was committing. Right. You know? <laughs> exactly. That's what I was gonna say. It's like this isn't even a crime. Like this in in America anyway, uh, and plenty of other places around the world. We really like harp on the fact that we're allowed to say almost anything we want. Like it's a pretty important part of of American culture. <laughs> this is not in this society. You can't. Like this is proof. Like it's not against the law what she did, but it's unwise. Right, because uh, there's people like Arian walking around who yeah. can do this and probably get away with it. Like it's it's very unlikely that Arian didn't get away with this. Like the fact that he didn't get away with this was was the upset here. Like he's probably with, done yeah, similar the, things and gotten away with it. The exception, yeah, that, yeah, you're right. This is yeah. the exception rather than the rule is Arian doing this kind of thing to someone, and that's it. No consequences for him. Lots of consequences for his victim, and that's the end of it. Uh, well, not for them, but for him. He, he, won't, he probably doesn't even think about it again. 
Now, we've alerted you all to countless times that George loves to give answers to riddles before giving the riddle itself. He has a kind of a micro version of that here. Here's an egg, Easter egg. The king's fourth son, said Raymond, not quite as bold as Prince Baylor, nor as clever as Prince Ares, nor as gentle as Prince Rhaegal. Now he must suffer seeing his own sons overshadowed by his brothers. Daron is a sot. Aaron is vain and cruel. The third son was so unpromising they gave him to the Citadel to make a maester of him. And the youngest... Sir! Sir Duncan! Egg burst in panting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is the... I, I really appreciate this foreshadowing. I knew, reading this, that uh, that Egg was, you know, who, who his identity was. But, like, my dad, for example, I don't think he knew. I don't think I told him. I, I don't know if my dad had pieced it together at that point. Maybe it's more obvious than I realize. I wonder how many readers... I, I, I sort of assume most not just 51%, but probably like 90% of readers starting these books already know that. I didn't, but of course I read them you know, a long time ago and that was neat. I was like, yeah. oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was a nice, legit surprise for me. I definitely didn't catch this, this moment where Egg jumps in just as they're saying, and the youngest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, there it is. Oh, speak of the devil, Egg. And you, you might say the timing of this is quite unlikely. And, you know, Can well, I just- he is... Point out that you said, speak of the devil, beg. I think we we all moved past that a little too quick. (laughs) That's how you have to do it. When you're me and you make lots of puns and you're not sure which ones are going to be funny, when no one reacts, you just have to keep going because it's like, oh, I guess they just didn't like that one. So it's just just part of the game, right? Some eggs don't hatch, you know? (laughs) Yeah, so it's it's pretty cool. It's only only a few... you, You can piece it together. Like, you can see it. Like, it says... A few moments earlier, he says there's only one brother unaccounted for. It says there's the vain and cruel one, the sot, and then the yeah. citadel, the one who went to the ma- his a maester. So he's clearly not there. And then there's so yeah. And then Egg refers to Arian as brother. He's like, I didn't want to look like you, brother. You know. Yeah, and we knew already that two Targaryens were missing. You know, there, there's so many clues along the way that. I agree. I think George does a great job of giving us a bunch of clues, but still hard to even know, like you said, what the clues are for. Right. But then once you realize, you're like, oh, it was right there the whole time. Yeah. He's a, a master of that. It's like a layer. It's a whole layer of items. And if you find a part of any part of the layer, you the whole potentially the whole layer is there. But you have to see the layer to find any of the layer. You have to find one yeah. one part of it. Any one part of it leads to the rest of it. But if you don't catch any one part of it, you won't get there. It's like R plus L equals J. There's a ton of clues for it. But if you don't start off on that track, you might you be like, ah, oh! and then it's just like a flood, you know, <laughs> yeah. of realization. Yeah. By the way, the third son was so unpromising they gave him to the Citadel? How dare they? How yeah, dare no. you? <laughs> First, I have several questions. First of all, how dare you? I mean, <laughs> so unpromising. Yeah, you know, I, I tend what? to think of, of Raymond not that poorly, but <laughs> that's not a great comment. Yeah, I guess he just doesn't yeah. know. He's just, it's all rumor. He, he, he doesn't know him personally, but... <laughs> Still. It's also maybe more from the warrior perspective, yeah, right? Yeah. The, the, this is a, someone who wants to be a knight at a tournament. You know, <laughs> they, they have a different standard of what makes someone, I don't know, good or a good leader or whatever. Yeah. That's funny too, because... For better or worse. And, and, mm-hmm. and Raymond says, poor Makar because of all his kids, but that's going to change because of how, uh, you know, so many Targaryens die and then Makar actually becomes king and these other things happen. The, the, the sons do quite well in 
the third Blackfire Rebellion, even though Arian sucks, uh, he apparently was a capable warrior and was useful, at least in that regard, during the, during the war. And Egg was also a very good warrior. So that turned out well. Also, I guess the lack of Makar's reputation as the anvil in the hammer and the anvil scenario that happened during the Battle of the Redgrass Field, that would make him look better because he was definitely a war hero. Um, so, of course, because of this, Dunk rushes off to save Tanzel. Now, this reminds us of, um, we've compared Joffrey to Arian, but it's uh, Joffrey's mother that is, uh, has a parallel here. And, or you can maybe, we can maybe throw a little Kyburn into this because, you know, Kyburn uh, is the one that asks for these prisoners to experiment on. So he's the worst of all, perhaps, but, you know, take your pick. They're all terrible. Here's the line of, uh, that, uh, when Kyburn is telling Cersei the equivalent example of what Arian reacts to here in 209 AC at Ashford. He gave her an apologetic smile and told her of a puppet show that had recently become popular amongst the city's small folk. Puppet show wherein the kingdom of the beasts was ruled by a pride of halting lions. Puppet lions grow greedy and arrogant, and as this treasonous tale proceeds, until they, until they begin to devour their own subjects. When the noble stag makes objection, the lions devour him as well, and roar that it is their right as the mightiest of beasts. And is that the end of it? Cersei asks, amused. Looking at it, looked at in the right light, it could be seen as a salutary lesson. No, your grace. At the end, a dragon hatches from an egg and devours all the lions. <laughs> the ending took the puppet show from simple insolence to treason. Yeah, so that's Cersei's inner thought there. Cersei is the one declaring that it's treason. And of course, as I just said, she gives the puppet, puppeteers to Kyburn. So that's... As far as being punished for treason, it's even worse than the standard punishment for treason. Normally, you're executed or sent to the wall, but they're given to Kyber and is worse than either of those things by far. And kind of an ironic twist of sorts. Obviously, it's not un- obviously it wasn't intended by Arian, but Dunk was probably going to lose everything by entering this tournament. <laughs> he was probably going to fail in his first joust, get beat, lose all his stuff. So in a very indirect way, Arian going and doing his bad thing to Tanzel saved him not only from losing everything, but propelled him more towards his trajectory of becoming Lord Commander of the Kingsguard and uh, being... Ye of little faith. <laughs> you don't think he was going to beat Valar? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, that's a good stopping point. We're right at the point where the Duncan is accosted and beat up by Arian's men. So next time we'll get to the climax of the story itself and probably be able to finish it. We'll be able to discuss the death of Baylor directly, the s- similarities to things like Makar and Stannis killing their own brother and, and not taking responsibility, full responsibility for it. Uh, lots of other parallels, lots of other fun stuff. And... We've got uh, a few things that we've saved up, such as the aforementioned parallels, but also a bunch of funny lines. Sean and I have taken uh, a note of some good quotes. A few of them we've already, we've already cited, as you know, but we've got several more. That'll be fun. That'll be one of the last things we do. Kind of a nice way to do our send-off in between stories. And then, of course, we'll be getting to the Sworn Sword the week after we finish the Hedge Knight. We'll see how that goes. So folks, if you have questions that you want answered, 
Um, since we'll probably be moving on from the hedge night, this is the best time to get them in. If you have questions relating directly to the hedge night, if they're just relating overall to Dunkin' Egg, well, they can be fit in pretty much any time during this run-through of three stories. Um, but we do appreciate any questions you send. We enjoy answering your questions. Um, but um, if you don't send them, we'll be just fine. We have plenty to say without them, too. <laughs> Yeah, thanks everyone for coming today. Appreciate if you came live and asked questions and hang out in the chat. That is awesome. But if you also catch it afterwards, that is also awesome. We appreciate you listening and or watching and or participating in all the different um, many ways we have available to participate or not. If you choose to just be a listener, that is fine too. We are cool with all shapes and sizes of participation. You do what is best for you, what is most comfortable for you, and we'll just keep putting episodes out. Thanks as well to our uh, all of our people who keeping our social media sites running and healthy. History Westeros mods, our Discord mods, everybody on Facebook, everybody doing all the things, helping keep our discussions extra cool. Thanks again to Nina. Thanks again to uh, Michael Clarfeld for the maps and our video intro. Thanks to Kevin McLeod for the Valor Aritas music. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the regular History of Westeros intro, outro music. Thanks to our Benjineer for editing and sound quality assistance. Uh, thank, uh, I do the you know, editing as far as what gets cut and what doesn't, but Ben works on the sound quality. I want to shout out, of course, as we often do, our friends at Here Be Dragons. They are discussing the Clone Wars again. They've done the Clone Wars before, but now they're up to season six. There's a lot of Clone Wars to discuss. It's one oh. of the biggest uh, series of Star Wars material outside of the movies. Probably the biggest. While we're bringing up Star Wars, everybody should read the High Republic books. They are That's quite that. good. I really was actually blown away by the most recent book. It was really good, so... There's one, my my uh, recommendation of the week. The word first was called Light of the Jedi. Second was called The Rising Storm. Uh, they're set, like say I said, in the High Republic. So there's, it's quite a while ago. There's not a lot of familiar characters. There's only one character you've heard of. Yoda! Yoda. He's not really in it. He's mm. just mentioned. But uh, they, that's the cool thing. You have all these Jedi. And they a lot of them get full introductions and a little bit of backstory. You have no idea which ones are going to die and which ones aren't. So the conflict is pretty legit. The tension pretty legit. They're yeah. all page turners. Hmm. They're not, it's not high literature. It is the High Republic. But it's good. It's very solid. <laughs> Well-written. Page turning. Good action adventure. Star Wars is fun. If you like Star Wars. Interesting themes that you would imagine, you yeah. know, about the militarization of the Republic and the, the fall of the Jedi and just how they get to the kind of inferior uh, version that they are during uh, the prequels. Yeah, yeah it's, it's really it's good. Very good. Okay. We have given a rousing rendition of that. And with that, um, we'll say goodbye, everyone. Thanks again. And until next week for more, Valar Reese.